Hello once again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We're at episode seven now, and Merry Christmas to everyone out there. Merry Christmas, Steve. We're in the spirit of giving this week. It's the holiday season. It's better to give than to receive. Our gift this week, unfortunately, is simply <laughs> just another edition of Monday Warfare, but we hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're moving right along here. I can't believe we're already seven episodes in. Yeah, Merry Christmas to everybody. Hope you all have a great, you know, safe and healthy Christmas, no matter how you celebrate. Hope you take the time to enjoy some Monday Warfare. Yeah, a lot going on in this edition of Monday Warfare as we're coming out of the World War III pay-per-view and all kinds of shit going down there. Uh, but first, before we get to two more weeks of Nitro, two more weeks of Raw, I got to remind everyone to go over to Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, at WrestleCopia. That's at WrestleCopia. That's our WrestleCopia podcast network, which you can find at WrestleCopia.com. You can also follow us here on Monday Warfare at Monday Warfare on Twitter. And, of course, our sister program, the Wrestling Memory Grenade. You can follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And I uh, also want to remind everyone, please subscribe to our Patreon account over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. We've got a lot of great complimentary pieces going up, Steve. We've already done Halloween Havoc 95. We've got Sur- Survivor Series 95. And we've also done World War Three 95. They're all in the books. They're all over there as part of the uh, Patreon account. as part of our watch-along series over there in the uh, all-access tier, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing considering the show's. Uh, but yeah, we felt like it was a great complimentary to our Monday show and they're easy to get through. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy them. Sign up. They're fun as hell to do. And I hope you guys enjoy them as much as we do. Yeah. I think it'd be a whole lot of fun, everybody. If you guys go out there and I'm not just trying to shill our, our product here. I, I think it really truly would be a lot of fun going in and checking out the watch alongs as you follow us here on the Monday warfare show. So you kind of know everything that's going on between the pay-per-views and the Monday show. So uh, you just head on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Fire up the World War III watch along before you finish the rest of this episode. Uh, but we're going to keep going, and we're going to talk about the fallout from World War III, and we're going to recap the pay-per-view really quickly here. If you guys, again, if you guys want to hear the entire show from top to bottom, hear us break it down and all the insight we have and all the fun we have as we, as we, <laughs> we relive the show, you can go over and listen, uh, listen to us on the watch along. For all intents and purposes here on Monday Warfare, We're just going to do a fast review of the show. If that's cool with you, Steve, we can get going. Sounds good to me, man. All right, so we kick off the World War III pay-per-view, not with a match, but with a promo. It's Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Sting. They're out there on a podium on a platform. Hulk Hogan rips off the black. He's back to the red and yellow, throws his black uh, attire into a garbage can, which randomly catches on fire and damn near burns, burns the building down. He mocks Dave Meltzer, talks shit about the Meltz without actually mentioning him by name, holds up an episode or uh, an edition of the observer and says, observe this as he throws it down into the fire. Hogan says everything that Dave Meltzer has been telling us is a line of crap. Uh, apparently Randy Savage's arm is a hundred percent, which is kind of funny because his arms completely taped up as we find out throughout the course of the pay-per-view. <laughs> and we Show- find out throughout the, rest of the, like the rest of the year. Yes. I think Hulk Hogan is the one that's full of shit, brother. <laughs> Nothing new there. Pay-per-view kicks off with Johnny B. Bad, television champion Johnny B. Bad going up DDP, uh, defending against DDP here. DDP puts the diamond doll Kimberly on the line, and Johnny B. Bad gets the win over DDP with a slingshot leg drop in 12 minutes, 35 seconds, and wins the services of Kimberly. 
And you can guess what that's supposed to entail. But yes, Johnny B. Beck is the services of Kimberly. I don't, <laughs> it's just, I never <laughs> understood these type of storylines. You can, you can own your own woman. <laughs> oh, and it's a baby face that, that wins, wins the, the woman. Instead of setting her free, he, he, he actually, <laughs> I got a question. Are you really a baby face, Johnny? I mean, you know, you won Kimberly, set her free, let her go. No, no, I'm, yeah. I'm going to have her come out and hold up signs for me now and do these random yeah. dances and all this other nonsense. Anyways, uh, don't want to stay too long on the World War III pay-per-views. We'll keep moving along. Uh, we, we're going to see some more Johnny B. Bad coming up here anyway. Uh, it looks like we got Big Bubba over Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a tape fist match after VK Wall Street came to ringside and tossed Bubba a chain. Bubba gets the win there in 10 minutes, 8 seconds. We had a really fun match from the All Japan women, Boldakano and Akira Hokuto. Over Cutie Suzuki and Mayumi Ozaki. Bull Nakano with the big leg drop off the top rope on Ozaki gets the win in 9 minutes, 16 seconds. We'll also be seeing those ladies here in a little bit. United States champion Kintsuki Sasaki over Chris Benoit in 10 minutes with a Northern Lights bomb. We get a match with Lex Luger over Randy Savage after Savage passes out from the pain of an arm bar in only 5.5 minutes. And remember, there's nothing wrong with that arm, even though it's heavily bandaged. And Randy Savage passes out from the pain applied from an arm bar. And uh, that was kind of an interesting finish to the match. Luger actually puts Savage in the torture rack on the floor, rolls him back inside, then applies that arm bar. And then we see Sting come down to ringside and whisper something to Luger to get him to release the hold. And we had seen the opposite happen on Nitro a week or two ago when Sting had Flair. Was it Flair? I think it was Flair. Yeah. And the Scorpion. And Lex Luger finally finds his way to ringside and says something to Sting, and, and Sting lets go of Ric Flair there. So it's uh, reverse roles here as Sting saves his buddy Randy Savage, but he's also friends with Lex Luger, and that complicated storyline continues to play out. Uh, speaking of Sting, he also takes on Ric Flair as part of the World War III pay-per-view and gets a win here. Pretty basic uh, Flair and Sting match. Gets a win with the Scorpion. Flair submits 14 minutes, 30 seconds. And that takes us to the main event of the World War III pay-per-view, everything they were selling it on. The three-ring, 60-man battle royal was won, so we think at this point anyway. And, and, and it is confirmed by the macho man Randy Savage in 29 minutes, 40 seconds. Randy Savage outlasts 59 other men. And the fun story here is, at least this is what I got from Eric Bischoff, Terry Taylor was in charge of keeping track of the first 50 eliminations. So Terry Taylor, I'm not sure if he was in the headsets. I don't know if he was in earpieces of the referee. I'm not sure if Terry Taylor was at ringside, but Terry Taylor was basically in charge of making sure the first 50 guys went out roughly in the order they were supposed to. Now, obviously, I don't think they cared if Mike Winter went out before Buddy Lee Parker or if James Earl Wright went out before, you know, another job guy, but Big Train Bart. But in general, Terry Taylor was in charge of making sure those first 50 guys got the hell out of the Dodge when they were supposed to. Who was in charge of the final 10, you ask? Hulk Hogan, of all people, was calling the spots in the ring, and he told the final nine guys, besides himself, when to go out. And uh, that's basically how it played out there. And I think we mentioned this. I know we mentioned this on the watch along. I don't believe we mentioned it prior to that. The original plan here was for Hulk Hogan to go over the top rope to the floor. However, he decided after, well, he probably decided before the match, but he, did, he waited until during the match to pass along information 
to the Giants and everyone else that he decided he's not going to go over the top rope. The Giants just going to pull him out underneath the ropes so he could save face because that's what Hulk Hogan does. And so even though Randy Savage wins the match, Hulk Hogan was actually never eliminated. The referee sees him on the floor. The Giant pulled him out under the ropes. And thus, Hogan was eliminated, but not really eliminated. And so we have that issue there. And of course, the pay-per-view then ends with a conflict between Randy Savage and Hogan. Hogan saying, hey, I was never eliminated, brother. And Randy Savage saying, hey, man, I'm the champion. That's just the way it is. And that brings us to this episode of Nitro. How do you feel about the finish to the World War III pay-per-view before we get going here? Uh, I never really cared for it. I just, I feel bad for Macho because I think we talked about this in the watch along is that every time he gets the world title, Hulk Hogan's always there hot dogging and grandstand and still in the, still in the thunder from him. Like he never really had his own title reign to where he was able to set himself apart and do his own thing. Even his initial, you know, big money title run that he had in 88, Hogan was there for every step of the way. Yeah, he carried house shows and things like that. But as far as the big matches that everybody remembers, it's always Hogan there. So it's just Savage is tied to Hogan, and this is just another layer of that story, and I don't, I don't like it. It's unfortunate. I, I just wish Hogan can get the hell out of the way for 30 seconds and let somebody else get that thunder. But it didn't happen. never did happen, really, with Macho, and it is what it is at this point. Yeah, I don't want to go too far off topic here, but I just think back to that four-year era of Hogan dominating the Royal Rumble, and you, you have to think, In 1989, he was eliminated by who? The Twin Towers. Who does he eliminate for revenge? The Big Boss Man. In 1990, as the story goes, he walks in and decides the day of the pay-per-view, nah, Mr. Perfect's not going over. I understand that I have this big story with the Warrior in the middle of the the match, and that's really all I need to get to my WrestleMania VI $1 million payday, brother. But wouldn't it be great if Hulk Hogan won the Rumble too? So he walks in, and story goes, he decides to tell Vince McMahon, nah, I'm going over. Screw Mr. Perfect. That's the story anyway. 1991, once again, Hogan goes over, uh, last eliminates Earthquake so that he can build himself to win the world title back at WrestleMania 7. And then, of course, fast forward to 92, once again, Hogan gets eliminated. So what does he do? He turns around and pulls Sid out. So it's uh, it's just a big, long string of sore loser Hulk Hogan. I, I don't think this is really babyface actions. And he just can't stand to lose. And it's it's funny because the guy, I don't know, man, he's living in his own world, but it just seems like he certainly knows how to play politics, but he knows how to book, uh, at least for himself as well, to keep himself over no matter what. And it's, I don't understand what going over the top rope and being eliminated by the giant here, if that's your storyline, why it's such a big deal. Yeah, I don't either. And what's what's a shame is is that he doesn't realize that no matter really what happens to him, he's never not going to be over to a certain degree. He's Hulk Hogan. I mean, let's be honest. He can go out and job three or four straight months and nobody's going to give a shit because he knows how to get himself out of that rut and can get the crowd back at some point. So it's just... I don't know. It, it, I never understood that aspect of any of these guys, to be honest with you. It's a, it's a, it's a work. You can always get your win back. You can always get the belt back. Who gives a shit how you get there? Egos and personalities and everything else involved just kind of puts a damper on all those things. So that, that, that never registers with me as a wrestling fan. I don't get it, but uh, it's just me. 
Yeah, and the fallout from the pay-per-view, at least according to The Observer, is a 70% thumbs up, 20% thumbs down, 10% in the middle. So if you take the thumbs up, the thumbs in the middle, add them together, you get 80% of the fans are either thumbs up or they're okay with the pay-per-view. I feel the same way. Uh, it was just one of those type of pay-per-views that was just kind of there for filler. Other than the world title being added to the Battle Royal, it was really just a spectacle. The undercard was... It felt like a very stacked house show card, really, uh, with Flair and Sting, Savage and Luger. But other than that, it really was nothing. So it was an okay pay-per-view. There was nothing too bad on there, maybe besides the tape fist nonsense. But uh, we got to get moving. We're going to get moving into WCW Nitro for November 27th. We're in Salem, Virginia, in front of 5,000 fans. 3,000 fans paid. And it's Eric Bischoff, Bobby Heenan with a mini Japanese flag, a la Rujo Brothers with the American flag. I love that. And Mongo has Pepe, and they're both in animal print this week. <laughs> and as I mentioned, a part of World War III, the big story there, it's not about who's the champion. It's about Hogan going back to Red and Yellow Brother, because that's the first clip we see on this episode of Nitro is Hogan getting rid of the black and going back to the Red and Yellow. That's a huge story, even though the mustache is still missing. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when Hogan can do what he wants with his character. And Bischoff, you know, he bought it hook, line, and sinker, to be honest with you. This is what happens. We get moving in the ring. It's television champion Johnny B. Bad. He now has Kimberly by his side. She's looking as fine as ever. He's taking on DDP in a rematch, and Kimberly looks great. She has the bla- uh, Johnny B. Bad has the Bad Blaster back, gives it to Kimberly, though, and she shoots it off. Uh, I-, I thought it was funny, too. I don't know if you paid attention when they were... When Johnny B. Bad sits on the ropes, he's trying to be a gentleman, opens the ropes for Kimberly to step in, and she steps in underneath the, the middle rope, which is common, most, most ladies do, and Bad never picks up on it. He just continues to sit on the middle rope while Kimberly's trying to duck underneath it to, to get in the ring. I thought it was over, but uh, my big <laughs> note here was, I don't know if it was the crowd. I mean, I know he's over. I don't know if it was the crowd or if he was just getting this over, but Johnny B. Bad was over as you-know-what, man. I mean, the crowd here was loud for his intro. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like it was every time he came out. I don't know if it was the music. I mean, like I think you've mentioned it. He probably had one of the best entrances in all of wrestling in 1995. And the music, the look, everything he had, it was just the total package as far as presence goes. And uh uh, that helps, and then you obviously you win the you have the belt, and you bring out Kimberly. You kind of saved her from DDP, so that I'm sure that added a little bit to it. Um, but yeah, he was over as hell. It, it's pretty crazy to think back on it now how over he was, and how Bischoff just let him go when he was hitting his stride. I felt like, yeah, and I've never really deep dived and and really soaked in this era, and I, and I've watched some of these nitros since they first aired, obviously, and in recent years. But I never really soaked it in. And as we're watching it this time, I am really in to Johnny B. Bad here. And I remember him being this over back in 1995, but it's amazing here that we're 25 years past this. And I'm just really getting into this again. The whole grand spectacle of the entrance, the entire look, the entire package, the stuff he's doing in the ring. He's always been a a fairly good promo. He's not going to sell you out a 20,000 seat arena, but, you know, he doesn't do anything wrong when he's on the mic. So, I mean, he just had basically the full package, had the look. The gear was amazing. The entrance gear, too. The music worked for him. I mean, just the entire package. And Kimberly even worked here uh, mm-hmm. by his side. So it's a shame to know that as we get going here with the Monday Warfare, 
bad's gone in another month or two, and this is this is over with forever. So it's just like he's at the height of his career, and he gets his legs cut out from under him simply by you know uh, one side not seeing what they had and offering him a low ball offer. To he jumps to the WWF with a high ball offer. He, he jumps at that, which I I can't blame him, and winds up doing nothing over there, and it's really unfortunate. But the match goes on. Uh, Bad's in the ring first. Out comes DDP next, looking disheveled as ever. Brings roses out to the ring as he looks down at the ground. He can't stand to even look up at Kimberly. DDP finally offers the flowers, the roses to Kimberly in the ring. Johnny B. Bad steps in. He wants to know what's going on. That's when DDP lays in the sucker punch and the match gets started. It seems Kimberly is torn, confused at ringside. She looks down into her roses and what does she find? A giant chain. And Mongo, and I know he was serious when he said, you can, if you go back and listen, he says, is that a bracelet? I mean, he was being serious when he said that. He didn't realize it was a, a wrestling chain. And it was one of those oversized novelty chains too. It wasn't something yeah. small. I mean, so she pulls out this gigantic chain and uh, she doesn't know what to do with it. And DDP, I don't know if you were watching the match at this point because the match was going on in the ring, but they're showing Kimberly telling the story with the chain on the, on the uh, floor. In the ring, DDP's Hilton hitting Tilt-A-Whirl-A-Mania in the ring. It's Tilt-A-Whirl-Tombstone, Tilt-A-Whirl-Side-Slam. Finally hits a Tilt-A-Whirl into a head scissors by Johnny B. Bad. Talking about going to the well once too often. It's like DDP just discovered he could Tilt-A-Whirl somebody. So <laughs> yeah. DDP, now in trouble, calls for the chain. He looks out at Kimberly. Give me the chain. Give me the chain. She looks confused. She doesn't know what to do. Finally, she tosses the chain in, but it, it flies between DDP's legs. So as he reaches down to grab it, it's Johnny B. Bad who picks up the chain and bam! Nails DDP, knocks him out flat. Johnny B. Bad gets the win in two minutes, ten seconds. It was that quick of a match. And post-match, this was really confusing to me. Uh, Bad uh, questions Kimberly. What the hell was she up to? What, was she, what were her intentions there? The announcers played up the same way. Was she intending to throw it to Bad? Was she trying to throw it to DDP? Kimberly, you know, I don't want to say she played it off like a heel, but as Bad's questioning her, wanting to know what was up, uh, Kimberly's like, well, you won, and, and that's all that matters. Hey, guys, Johnny B. Bad won, and she raises his hand, tries to get him to cha- change the subject. Very confusing, and I think the announcers were, uh, they didn't really know what was going on either, which is odd, considering Eric Bischoff should know everything that's going on, but the way they play it up, they, they don't even have answers, so I don't know what they were going for here. I think there was just uh, throughout the match they were talking about how her body and mind maybe would trying to be bad, but her heart could still be with DDP. Uh, if you watch her, I mean, it's not hard to not watch her, but she had a lot. Like her facials during this match was great. She was she was kind of questioning herself if she really wanted to be away from DDP, and that's kind of how the com the commentators are selling it. If she wasn't sure, and then all of a sudden she found that chain. It's like, do I help bad win or do I give it back to DDP? What do I do? And it feels like they was going for something here where she would possibly turn and go back with DDP or, or what, but we never really get a payoff for this. Uh, we've talked about it where it ends up with the booty man getting with Kimberly and things like that. So it, it's unfortunate because I would have been interested to see what they did. Uh, it could have all been a coup from between DDP and Kimberly just to get the TV title back and get that some extra heat on him, things like that. So like I said, it's just unfortunate. We never really got the payoff to this one. Promo time. It's me and Gene Okerlund in the aisle with Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart. Kevin Sullivan has an issue with Lex Luger running around with Sting. 
And of course, Jimmy Hart now manages Lex Luger. So Sullivan calls out Jimmy Hart. Why did Lex Luger release Randy Savage from that arm bar? Sullivan's pissed off because Luger could have ended Savage's career. He could have kept Savage out of the Battle Royal, and thus Savage wouldn't have won the Battle Royal, which Sullivan assumes automatically that means the Giant or one of the other members of the Dungeon of Doom could have won it, and instead Savage gets the win, all because Lex Luger released the armbar. So Sullivan's not happy that Luger's still with Sting. Jimmy Hart talks about how far back he goes with Kevin Sullivan. Jimmy Hart was Kevin Sullivan's first manager, which I believe is true. Sullivan was basically a babyface in the WWWF. It wasn't until Memphis that he did a heel run. So that's probably true. Jimmy Hart was his first manager. I'm not sure if he had any in Knoxville, but I like how they played played on that anyway, going back that far in their careers. But uh, Jimmy Hart says Sting and Lex Luger go back just the way Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan go back. So it takes time. I love how they're having this conversation on TV, Jimmy Hart on TV, openly announcing that I'm trying to get Lex Luger to stop being friends with Sting. It's, it's comical, some of the conversations that take place on wrestling, on, on TV. Yeah, it also could be, too, that he's working on it to maybe possibly get Sting to join his buddy Luger and what they're trying to do with Hogan. So I guess it's all on how you interpret that. But, yeah, I thought this was stupid. Um, it was a very dumb conversation and a waste of time, to be honest with you. I, I didn't like this segment at all. You know, I thought the end part wasn't very good. I thought it was – I hate when they do that. They, they're they not breaking a fourth wall, but it's like, why do people have these conversations out loud in the open in front of the camera like the wrestlers can't see it and know what's going on? So it's almost like you're plot, making a plot to do something, and you're announcing it on live TV, and, like, <laughs> the other guy's not going to hear it. And I hated right. that part. I was actually impressed. I, I – as soon as I saw, whenever I see Sullivan and Jimmy Hart here, 95, 96, I groan because it's Dungeon of Doom related. So the promos aren't very good. This is not Varsity Club Kevin Sullivan or Devil Worshipping Kevin Sullivan, really pretty much anything else Kevin Sullivan. This is Dungeon of Doom Kevin Sullivan. So I tune out most of the time. I was actually impressed that they came up with that, that thought process. It seems obvious, but I didn't think of it until he mentioned it. Hey. Lex Luger could have kept that armbar on Savage. He wouldn't have worked the Battle Royal. There would have been one less top star in the Battle Royal. Instead, he lets go. Why? That's your boy, Jimmy Hart. Why? So I like that part. The rest of it I could have done without. Well, the part that bothered me about that part was the fact that they said if he would have just held it on for 10 more seconds, as if 10 more (laughs) seconds in that weak-ass armbar was really going to finish off Macho Man. I, I get what he's trying to say. But if he added, if he left out that ten second part, I would have been okay with that part too. But uh, he just needed ten more seconds, and I don't. I'm like, ten <laughs> uh, seconds is all. It you takes. don't have faith in your boy Lex Luger. I don't know, man. <laughs> well, we've seen the armbar. Don't uh, lose the yeah, faith. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's back to the ring. We get a rematch from World War Three, and of all the matches at the pay per view, other than the Battle Royal, this would have been the one I wanted to see a rematch. I really enjoyed their match. At the pay-per-view, and we get it again at Kira Hokuto and Bull Nakano taking on Cutie Suzuki and Mayumi Ozaki. And I have a bunch of notes here, so I just want to run through them, and then I'll let you throw in any comments you might have. Uh, we'll talk about the finish. I don't know if you saw what happened there. I'm sure you did. At the pay-per-view, the heels attack the baby faces, so they try to do it again here. Hokuto tries to attack both the young ladies, but it's Suzuki and Ozaki ready this time. They double close on Hokuto instead. Uh, Hokuto takes over with a hanging choke on Ozaki in the corner. She stands on the middle rope, uh, hooks a choke on Oza- around Ozaki's neck, and then s- scoops her up into the air. Really cool looking. And then Nakano comes in, 
grabs Hokuto or Ozaki by the hair and gives her some hair whips uh, that, oh my God. I mean, that girl took some nasty bumps here. Cutie Suzuki in the ring with a dragon suplex on Hokuto. And what a bridge I wrote on this one. It was amazing. She did a complete headstand bridge in this dragon suplex on Hokuto. Nakano comes in, misses a top rope leg drop, her finisher. And I had to listen to the crowd. And I put that in my notes too. Nakano just climbing to the top rope and standing there. This was a great crowd. They really pop for these girls, which is unusual given the time period. And uh, usually they're tuned out. So they were really showing respect here. Early in the match, it felt like some of these guys must have watched the pay-per-view. And they knew what to expect. You can't tell me there wasn't a market for this shit. What a coincidence that within the same month in both companies, the WWF and WCW, they both bring in a a large troop of Japanese women. Of course, uh, Vince brought in, what, six of them? And WCW brought in four. And they've just, they've stolen the shows on both Survivor Series and World War III. Uh, certainly here, especially in WCW, but I was just really amazed by the reaction they were getting from the crowd, the amazing uh, work they were putting on in front of the crowd, and they were actually appreciating it. There was definitely a market here, and it felt like when this happened, I can I remember this when it happened, it felt like this is what they were going to do. You thought, well, there's there's women's divisions, the Japanese women's division, for lack of a better term. In both companies, all of a sudden, they both decided to create this new thing, and I was ready for it. I was excited. I mean, we didn't just get them on the pay-per-views. We got them post-pay-per-views on TV, so it really looked like they were sticking around to some degree, and instead, they just disappear, never to be heard from again for the most part. Uh, what'd you think of this match? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, they had less time on this one than they did at World War Three, so they was just going balls to the wall. It was so fast-paced, and it was doing so much work in so little time. It was just nonstop action, and it was, it was a little sloppy at times, and that's to be expected when you're going this fast. And it's probably a different size ring, just all sorts of different situations that could have been, caused it. My final thought, like what I took away from this match, was how awesome Akira Hokuto was. Uh, I knew a Bull, Bull Nakano from WWF in her matches with Alunda Blaze and Medusa, whatever you want to call her. And she's awesome. She has a hell of a presence. She looks tremendous, like a character, like somebody like, damn, this woman is crazy looking. And then she goes in the ring and backs it up. And you're just like, you can't do anything but respect that. So uh, I I really enjoyed these Japanese women. They were tremendous. They were so far ahead of their time as far as American wrestling goes. Guys, women, it doesn't matter. They were so far ahead of what other people were doing outside of maybe the cruiserweights that come in. And they were just awesome. They they stole the show. Yeah, uh, it was very <laughs> impressive. As yeah, the match kept work. going, uh, the two babyface ladies, double log roll on Bull Nakano, and then to the top rope, both girls, a quadruple top rope foot stomp, or a double coupe de gras, if you will, on Bull Nakano. Very impressive. Bull comes did back. You see and what, re- uh, What's that? Did you see what? Did you see what Heenan, or did you pick up on what Heenan called that? <laughs> I have no idea. He called it the Oriental Heimlich. <laughs> yeah. He used the word Oriental about 14 times in this match. I I remember that. I was dying on that one. That was pretty damn funny (laughs) because they landed right on her gut, and it made sense. So I thought that was funny. The match kept going. Bull Nakano comes back. The girls try to double suplex Nakano, but it's Bull who reverses and double suplexes both girls. And then Akira Hokuto right away with a diving splash onto both girls after they go down. Uh, The match continues. Cutie Suzuki off the top rope, uh, but nails her own partner, Ozaki. Hokuto with the Northern Lights, very impressive Northern Lights on Cutie for two there. 
Suzuki tries to sunset flip Bull Nakano, but Nakano simply nails a Yokozuna-style butt drop and flattens Suzuki. It was, uh, it was pretty, pretty stiff. <laughs> Bull uh, climbs up to the middle rope, but gets drop-kicked off to the floor, and she begins to hobble on her knee immediately after she lands on the outside. So certainly some issues there. Akira Hokuto, uh, excuse me, now I sound like Conrad Thompson. Akira Hokuto climbs to the top rope and dives off with a somersault flip onto both baby faces, but they move. And Hokuto actually lands on Bull Nakano. And that's immediately when I pick up on Bull Nakano's seriously hurt. She's down. She's clutching her knee. I believe she's speaking into the back of Hokuto, who's laying next to her on the, on the floor outside. It was immediate. And it wasn't until I went back and checked that it looks like she tweaked it on the bump where she took the drop kick and fell off the middle rope to the floor. But she was still getting around okay until she caught her partner with that somersault dive. And that was pretty much the end of that. Uh, she couldn't really get up and do anything after that. She can't walk on it, but she does it anyway. You can tell that, that she should not be walking at this point, but she's still determined to get to where she needs to. So instead of having Hokuto just get in the ring and take over, Bull powers up to her feet and hobbles all the way over to into the ring and to her corner on the other side of the ring just to make that legal tag. What a pro. I want to say what a man, but what a, what a, a woman, man. Just... Bull Nakano's a beast, and I don't mean that in a negative at all. I, I wrote here, what a pro, what a tough human being, to make sure she did her part before she completely goes down, because she's pretty much done at that point. And Hokuto comes in, double missile dropkick, looked beautiful uh, on both baby faces, and a fisherman's buster on Cutie Suzuki. Hokuto gets the win, 5 minutes, 22 seconds. And Dave Meltzer, uh, I had to go look this up, mentioned that Bull Nakano suffered an ACL injury which verified what was already pretty obvious. Uh, but I did look up some results of Bull, and it looks like even though she's hurt here in November, she's back in the ring in Japan by Christmas Eve. That's not to say she's 100%. She's just a trooper. But at least uh, this wasn't like a long-term thing anyway. Yeah, it's crazy what these guys can do, or these women, any of them, that they can do when they get injured. You know, Triple H with the quad. stayed. He did the lion tamer. and whatever else he did or was supposed to do and it's crazy how they can just go to that next level and continue and finish what they're supposed to do and then deal with it later i mean your, your acl's torn or pretty badly injured yet you still get in and do what you're supposed to do so you don't miss a spot it's just it's just awesome and they deserve the ultimate respect just a hell of a two two nights for all four women just very entertaining uh, very awesome, and it's really unfortunate, like you said, that we didn't get more of this because I don't know how you can watch these two matches in two separate nights and say, well, there's no market for this. I, I don't know how you can do that as a promoter, a booker, or whatever. And it makes even less sense here because you got Medusa coming in like two weeks. So it makes yeah. even less sense. Could you imagine the lineup if she's running through these women or, or wrestling these women uh, at this point? I mean, yeah. Right. Sign me up. You can give me one of these matches every week. Oh, absolutely. It's unfortunate. You know, they, they sign Medusa and then they have nothing for her because it's pretty much the same as Vince McMahon. They just signed her away is all it was because they, they had no intention of maybe, maybe in the back of his mind, Bischoff had intentions of starting up a real women's division. You already have it right here. So it's not like mm -hmm. something you got to figure out. It's already been, you've already figured it out. 
you've got four girls right here. And I know they, they've got commitments in Japan as well, but there's dozens of ladies over there waiting to come over here and shine. So uh, it's not like Bull Nakano has to be here every week or, or every month for that matter. If you want to bring somebody else in, you know, for exchange or, or for a month here or, or there. So yeah, I just, I think both companies dropped the ball. Obviously Vince did. Vince is the one that went to, Alundra Blaze, Medusa, and told her, you know, I just don't have, I can't afford to keep you here. And, and cuts her loose instead of re-signing a new contract, which is why she jumps. And then, you know, even though it looks like all these other ladies who were part of the Survivor Series are going to stick around because they're on the tapings after the pay-per-view, that's the end of them as well. So they're open, too, to, uh, to have come here to WCW. That would have been very interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm surprised Bischoff didn't take advantage. Just I mean, take advantage. An, an eventual showdown between Bull Nakano and Aja Kong, that's not money? Uh, yeah, I, I guess they're so far lost in what they think is reality compared to just listening to the crowd and doing what you should do. Right. The crowd will tell you where to go, and if you don't listen to it, that's your own damn stupidity. Right. Coming up on WCW Saturday night, it's Sting taking on Kurosawa. Hacksaw Jim Duggan looks for a little revenge against VK Wall Street. The American Male's in action, and Dean Malenko's back. Do you know how, what a mark I was in 1995 that there were 60 men in that battle royal? And I remember this. Uh, I didn't realize Sabu was already gone. He had left a week or two prior to the pay-per-view. I think he was originally one of the original guys advertised for the actual battle royal. Uh, so... I was really pissed off. I remember this like yesterday, man, that Dean Malenko and Sabu weren't in that battle royal. Like that was my big gripe in that battle royal. Like they were two of my favorites in the WCW, new guys in the WCW at this point. And I was just worried. And I'm sure Dean was probably on a tour of Japan and that's why he wasn't even at the pay-per-view. But I didn't know that at that time. So I was like, where's he at? Is he gone already? And then Sabu, I didn't obviously at that point hadn't realized he had, he was gone as well, but when he didn't appear at the Battle Royal, the writing was on the wall for me. Again, you know, no real internet back then for myself, at least not on a weekly basis. I, I think I, I, I don't think I had full access to the internet all the time. Well, maybe, maybe sometime in 95 I did. I don't remember. But all the news wasn't out there at that point. So, yeah, I'm, it's good to see Dean Malenko's coming up on Saturday night. He hasn't gone anywhere yet. And we're back to the ring on Monday Nitro. And it's a Hulk Hogan match once again. So Hogan... Back on Nitro, wrestling a match, this time against another member, the newest member of the Dungeon of Doom, Hugh Morris. And Morris doing the heel doink gimmick is what I wrote down here because it's basically what it is. Comes down to the ring laughing, then all of a sudden he gets really serious and angry like he wants to murder you. Then he's back laughing again. Then he's angry again. It's very much heel doink. It's just without the paint. Yeah, pretty much. Not as good either. No, no, definitely not. Hulk Hogan looks so small. I wrote this right here in my notes. Uh, he really do, did look small by this point, certainly off the gas for his movie role, uh, to some degree anyway. Still no mustache. The red and yellow is back, but no mustache, and he's looking about 30, 40 pounds trimmer than usual. The pythons aren't looking 24 inches here, brother. And on top of his goody-goody act, he just doesn't look or feel like Hulk Hogan right now. He just doesn't. Like, as I watched his entrance, he didn't command the crowd like Hulk Hogan. He didn't feel larger than life. He just felt like a guy pretending, dressed up. He looks like that guy that's always in the pay-per-views. The guy, his name on Facebook's Roddy Hogan. The, you remember the guy that used to dress up like Hulk Hogan and come to the pay-per-views? That's oh, who yeah. he feels like here. 
Just some dude pretending to be Hulk Hogan is what this felt like for me as I watched this entrance. He's just a shell of himself at this point. Like he's more busy with Hollywood and just, I think he's lost to some degree because he doesn't know what to do for the first time in his career. He's not really over and there's no way he doesn't realize that. Yeah. I I feel like, and that guy you're talking about, he's at all these night shows. I don't know if you've noticed, but he's front row every single time um, you can see him. Yeah, I, I just don't think he feels invested. I don't think he's bought into it. Uh, I think it feels like he's just there collecting a check. I, I feel like the fans boring him and never really buying into him here. I think it bothers him. And like you said, I think he's lost. I don't think he knows how to get out of it, get out of the funk that he's in. And maybe, I, I don't know, I, I'm just speaking, I'm probably speaking out of turn here, but it just makes you feel like, Maybe deep down he's wondering, you know, maybe it was Vince that helped me get to that. You know, maybe he's doubting himself, things like that. Because it just doesn't feel like Hogan. His promos are terrible. I'm not saying they were the greatest to begin with, but, I mean, he's kind of all over the place. He doesn't know what to say in them. I don't think he's bought into the stories that he's stuck in. And this gets progressively worse <laughs> as the weeks go on here up until what happens at the end of the year in 95. So. Yeah. I just don't, I just think he's discouraged and he doesn't know what to do. He's just going through the motions and it's kind of weird to see thinking it's hard to think of Hulk Hogan that way, to be honest with you. Even if you're not a fan, I mean, this dude's like the guy, so to speak at this point and he's in a rut and it's just weird. Yeah. And I was so tuned out on Hulk Hogan during this era because I was never really a huge fan of Hulk Hogan to begin with. So during this run, when it was cartoony and the Dungeon of Doom stuff, I was watching Nitro, but I was watching Nitro for pretty much everyone else. So I really didn't realize this until now, like 25 years later, I'm just not realizing how out of it the Hulk Hogan was here at this point in in his career. But the match continues on. Hulk Hogan nails Hugh Morris. And once again, Eric Bischoff with, he hit the deck and he hit the deck hard. God, I hate that line. And man, he just uses it. (laughs) Every week right now, it's driving me nuts. Hugh Morris does a spot here. Pretty cool spot for a big man like him. Good agility. Walks the ropes up to the middle rope and does a reverse clothesline. And the crowd pops. I wrote crowd pops. And I wrote that for a reason. The crowd is popping because a middle-of-the-card guy, at best, just hit Hulk Hogan with a clothesline, and the crowd cheered. That's it's crazy to think. And he hit Hogan good, too. I mean, he caught him really good. I mean, it wasn't like... He tried to close on his head off, but it was very solid compared to what anyone else was doing to Hulk Hogan at this point. So I wonder what Hogan thought about that. Very surprised that Hugh Morris kept the job, to be honest with you. <laughs> for actually hitting Hogan? Yes. Yes, for actually laying in a move. And again, it wasn't stiff, but it was just solid like you would see in any other match. I don't know if that's a Hogan thing or if everybody was so scared to hurt the golden goose or if him, you know, if you'd hit him the wrong way, he's going to throw you under the bus and there you go. I'm sure it was difficult to work with Hogan, not necessarily dealing with him before the match, but in the match, it would psych me out like, okay, I can't do anything that's going to hurt this guy or my job here is probably gone because I don't know how he's going to do what he's going to do or what he's going to do. He has control of whatever he wants. And um, it'd be like walking on eggshells, I'd feel like. And that's really no way to go out there and do business. Um, Because you got to be able to go out there and just go with the motion and go with the flow and not worry about hurting somebody. Just, you know, you're a professional. You know what to do. 
doesn't feel like these guys were willing or wanting to go out and do that with Hulk Hogan involved because they were afraid to hurt him and not knowing what would happen. So Morris took over with that reverse clothesline off the ropes, and he begins laying in some shitty chops. And out of nowhere, Mongo calls Morris's chops Wahoo McDaniel. Like that was out of left field, man. It just it, it made it came out of nowhere, and it just felt like Mongo, Mongo's trying to show off his quote unquote knowledge of the business by throwing the name Wahoo out there and mentioning chops. It, what a random match to do that in, especially with uh, Hugh Morris here. Maybe if it had been Brian Pillman or Ric Flair, that's another story. But Hugh Morris, no. And speaking of no, it's no laughing matter as Hugh Morris nails his moonsault and immediately, and it looked like his head smacked into Hogan's face. And Hulk sold his face, so I started wondering for a minute, oh my God, did he just land on Hulk Hogan's face? Because no, he couldn't have, because then he really wouldn't have had a job. So Hulk does <laughs> the Hulk up, though, and it's the big boot and the leg drop. Hogan gets the win two minutes and 40 seconds over Hugh Morris. Speaking of shitty commentary, during this match, the crowd's like completely dead silent. I think it was right after the crowd popped on the middle row clothesline. Yeah. Um, Bischoff, like, Bischoff's trying to sell that, like the crowd popping. He said, you can hear the crowd chanting Hogan, Hogan, but the crowd's like dead silent at that moment. The commentary is just trying to, hopefully you're not paying attention to the crowd. So, yeah, they're doing everything they can to kind of hide the issues that they are probably recognizing with Hogan at this point. Promo time yet again. It's mean Gene Okerlund with new WCW champion, Randy Savage. But Gene says there's controversy. Oh, call the hotline. Because of course, Hulk Hogan has to take the spotlight. He wants to see the footage, brother. So the Hulkster's out here. He wants to see the footage. He doesn't, he wants Savage to see the footage that Hogan is pulled out under the ropes, not thrown over the top rope. And we go back to the Battle Royal, and we begin to see footage of the finish of the Battle Royal. But wouldn't you know it, the footage cuts out. It goes to snow just as Hogan is getting his foot pulled by the Giant. Like, what the fuck? What is wrong with WCW pay-per-view footage? Last month, it wasn't at the damn show on time. This month, they don't even have the whole entire pay-per-view on tape. The tape cuts out. Uh, Get a new production team. Jesus Christ. I think the best part too is like a week or two later they're pr- they're pushing the the re- the video release <laughs> to pay per view. Well, it's not and just it's that. Like, why the, why the, why yeah, go on. If the if, if the mat, the shit at the end's cut out. <laughs> well, it's not just <laughs> that. They're sitting here in the middle of this show, pr- or the middle of this promo, promoting the replay tomorrow on pay per view. So Hogan needs to go grab a tape from the store, go down to your local Walmart or whatever the hell you had back then, and Grab a VHS tape, pop it in a VCR somewhere, brother, and record the finish. And then you can play it for Randy Savage because even though we don't have the finish here on Nitro, they pretend like we'll never be able to see it again. Meanwhile, at the same time, they're promoting the replay for tomorrow night on pay-per-view. If you can see me right now, man, I'm just shaking my head. Like, I, I don't <laughs> know. It's crazy that they do this stupid stuff. Do they not think? I don't so, think they're considering... The, the the small things it's right. just like okay this is this is all new we got to get the big shit out of the way who cares nobody's gonna look at it this way right <laughs> whatever just terrible so we continue on with the promo and i should mention the promo is taking place in the aisle not in the ring because the giant comes out and he attacks both men he attacks randy savage choke slams him on the concrete floor on his bad arm no less and that was more randy's fault randy took the bump on his bad arm because 
this entire thing was necessary? I I don't know. Anyways, the giant goes over to Hogan. They fight all the way to the ring. Sting jumps up onto the apron, tries to put a stop to it, but the giant grabs a hold of Sting's. That allows Hogan to have time to go get a chair. The babyface Hogan goes and gets a chair and pops Randy Anderson. Boy, he sent Randy Anderson flying, by the way. Hogan looked like he hit him for real with a back elbow. Poor little fucking 100-pound Randy Anderson. Hogan grabs the chair, and I counted, Steve. Hits the giant with the chair 11 times. And you might go, holy shit, if you haven't watched this in a while. But each time, the shots, the chair shots got lighter and lighter to the point where the last three chair shots didn't even make sound. <laughs> you make up for it in a future episode. Let, let, we'll just go with that. My goodness. And, so this uh, is the new gimmick they're trying. They're yeah. going nuts with still chairs. We close the segment out with uh, Sting trying to get Hogan off of the giant in order to come check on Randy Savage, who's still down from the choke slam. I would I like the fact that they kept Savage out of the ring, not just because he's the new champion, but because he's injured and he takes another day off. But it kind of defeats the purpose when you have a guy come out and choke slam you on the concrete floor on your bad arm. It's just, what was the point of, of, of protecting Randy Savage here? I uh, damn WCW man, just oh my god. Yeah, makes no sense. I don't know if that's a WCW or if that's a Macho Man call. I right I now. know it's I know it's Macho Man, but they allow it to happen. You know, they, they, you got to protect people sometimes from themselves. This is like the corner man needs to throw in the towel. When your dude's getting beat up, you got to stop it. Right. I mean, at some point, you got to protect the, the fighter, and uh, nobody's taking that responsibility to tell Macho you need to cool it for a couple weeks. So our main event this week is the horsemen of Brian Pillman and Arn Anderson taking on Sting and Lex Luger, the best friends club. And they play it up first. The horsemen are out first. Then it's Sting by himself. Where's Luger? Where, where's Lex Luger? Because Lex and Sting are going to come out together. Uh, but that's the way they play it. Like Lex Luger might have stood Sting up. Man, what, imagine if Sting had got swerved, bro, twice in a month. What an, what an idiot you would have looked like. But no, his buddy's right. coming out. It's Lex Luger to the rescue. He finally makes his way out. They don't even start playing this music till he's halfway to ringside. WCW was terrible at getting music done on time, I'm telling you. Brian Pillman takes over Anita Sting's back. Arn Anderson with a spine buster almost right away. But Lex breaks up the count on the pinfall. Lex returns the favor to Arn and knees Arn in the back, but Lex is on the apron and he gets knocked off the apron when he does it. And I think it was an accident. Like, I, th- I don't think he was supposed to bump off the apron, but he lost balance and, and falls off the apron as he's nailing arm because it's like Sluger and it's 1995, but it allows sting to take over and sting, uh, on the offense presses, both members of the horseman stinger splash scorpion deathlock on Arn Anderson, but Brian Pillman climbs up to the top rope behind sting. He can't see him. Luger comes over and pushes Brian Pillman off the top rope, but he pushes him into sting. Was it on purpose? I mean, if it was, why did he just let Pillman do it to begin with? I, I don't understand. I mean, I get what they're trying to do here, but I don't know, man. So Sting has Arn in the Scorpion. Pillman climbs up to the top rope behind him. Luger pushes Pillman off, supposedly to help Sting, but Pillman winds up landing into Sting anyway, and that's how the announcers sell it, and that's how, as a fan, you perceive it as well. Was that done on purpose? Did he purposely use Pillman as a projectile to screw his own partner? Uh, if it was on purpose, why? I don't know. So the heels wind up getting some heat on Sting after that. Lex finally has enough. He attacks both heels. An awkward finish. See Sting with an O'Connor roll on Pillman and gets the win in 5 minutes and 33 seconds. And it almost seemed uh, weird because 
immediately after the pinfall, Arn Anderson nails a DDT on Sting while he still has Pillman in the O'Connor role, and Flair arrives at ringside like during the pinfall. Something seemed, the, the timing was off on somebody here, it felt like. Are you shocked? <laughs> I mean, no, it's just, uh, had Flair ran in before the finish, that would have made sense. Had Flair ran in after the finish, that would have made sense. Flair running down and attacking Luger off the apron during the three count, that just, something wasn't right there. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? It's really hard to tell because they have these timing issues almost every single week, it seems like. So you really don't know if it's what exactly is supposed to be happening or what is going on. Uh, This whole finish was weird. I think he pinned the wrong guy. To be honest with you, I don't even think Pillman was legal. It it just looked odd. And the whole aftermath, like, Flair was in the ring almost immediately, so that didn't make any sense. Why not just break up the call at the pin and just beat the hell out of these guys instead of letting Pillman do the job? So just a cluster of a finish. Just not a lot. I don't know, man. It sucked. Yeah. And post-match, Ric Flair posts Lex Luger on the floor, and he pops referee Nick Patrick and poor referees tonight. First, Hogan just wipes out Randy Anderson. Now, Ric Flair, no respect to Nick Patrick. Something needs to be done here. Maybe something will be done. Brian Pillman hits a flying splash off the top rope on the Lex Luger. Meanwhile, Ric Flair with the figure four on Sting. Hulk Hogan, of all people, makes a save because he hasn't been on TV enough tonight. It's Hulk Hogan to the rescue. He makes a save, runs all three members of the Horsemen out of the ring because, of course, he does. And Hulk saves Sting, but he wants to attack Luger. Sting has to pull Hulk away from Lex. And Hulk and Sting finally chat and shake hands after the match. Lex Luger escapes the clutches of the of the Hulkster. Yeah, just a cluster. So Hogan beats you, Morris. He beats up the Giant. He points out that he shouldn't have been eliminated from the Battle Royal. And now he's out here saving Sting and Lex Luger, because they can't fight the Horsemen off themselves, they need Hulk Hogan to take out all three of them. Uh, who do you think booked this episode of Nitro, brother? Hulk Hogan, man, of course. Or at least his own segments. <laughs> and we close the show, and Eric Bischoff announces that this week on Saturday night, there's going to be an update on Starcade. And as he says that, Bobby Heenan picks up that mini Japanese flag and begins to wave it. Just a little precursor to let you know that something's coming up this weekend. The announcement is on the B-Show for what was at one time the WrestleMania of WCW. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, they, it seems like these shows are just a throwaway, to be honest with you, the pay-per-views anyway. It, it just seems like their their main focus is Nitro and killing the WWF. I, I don't think they care about anything else. Um, and that even rears its ugly head as we get on, go along here. Just so awkward. You can't cut out a Hogan segment and tell us what's going on at Starcade. And it's time for a segment of the night, Steve. What's your segment of the night? The ladies, the main event. You tell me. Oh uh, man, is nothing allowed as an answer here? Uh, oh wow. I, I I I love the ladies match, and that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with the, the just the action and they had enough time to be entertaining. I, I like the Luger and Sting stuff, but it wasn't enough here to be the best of this show. So I, I'm going with the women's match. It, it was just tremendous. And again, like we stated, I wish there was more of it at, around this time frame that we could get our hands on during this, this Monday warfare, but this is it. So um, we, I enjoyed it while we had it. Right. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with you. I mean, I think the tag team women's match was probably easily the best thing on the card. The main event could have been better, 
especially uh, the finish made sense, but it was just all over. The, it felt like a cluster just all over the place. And so Hulk Hogan was just everywhere on this show, except for the ladies segment and maybe the DDP segment. So it was pretty easy to eliminate all of that and just kind of look at what was left. And certainly the best wrestling match of the night goes to the ladies. So I'm going to give it to the ladies here this week. Definitely the segment of the night for me as well. As we move over to the WWF and Monday Night Raw for November 27th. And it's taped uh, last week, November 20th in Richmond, Virginia at the Richmond Coliseum. But before we do that, just a couple of quick WWE-related notes. It's at this time that Smoky Mountain Wrestling ceases operations. Jim Cornette's going to be full-time now with the WWF, and we'll probably see some of the Smoky Mountain talent wander over into the WWF at this point. We've already seen the transition of guys like Candido and and Isaac Yankum and Al Snow, and I'm sure more will follow. Uh, The WWF is also reportedly moving away from kids-only content, and that's been pretty obvious, beginning to mix in adult oriented content as well. It's going to make for a tough balance trying to get both focal points in, both keep the keep the kids without pissing off the parents, but bringing in new adults as well. It's going to be an interesting mixed bag, see how they work work that thing out uh in the inception of the idea anyway. WWF received complaints apparently as they kicked this idea off at the Survivor Series uh in regards to the Bret Hart and Diesel match where they were using chairs and tables and Diesel clearly mouthing Mother Effer into the camera at the end of the Survivor Series match. They're trying to do a balancing act here. Uh, Dave Meltzer notes this. They're trying to do a balancing act here, making it a rougher product, but not alienating any of the audience or the sponsors. Uh, and my opinion is that's just not going to be an easy thing to do. I'm very curious to see how they transition and where, where they run into some snags. Yeah, I'm wondering how long it takes for them to lose some of the, that audience and that. Um... Obviously, they make it up, but I wonder how long the sponsors stick around. Like, what was the breaking point for that? And uh, one final piece of note before we get to the episode of Raw. Lastly, I've heard this story several times over the past 20 years. Uh, I know several wrestlers have told it. But the Click reportedly met with Vince McMahon on the road a few times uh, when Vince was actually making the house show loop there for a little bit, seeing what the hell was going on with the company, why it was falling apart financially. And one of the conversations, and I heard this took place at nighttime during a telephone call, which uh, I'm pretty sure that's how it's usually told. But Meltzer tells it is this, it really doesn't matter where it took place, but Meltzer claims it took place at one of these arenas. And it regarded the click going through the entire roster, the t- entire WF roster, name by name. And they, they, the click, evaluated whether that wrestler belonged in the WWF or should be moved up or down the card. So the click trying to completely take over the company and telling Vince what to do. Uh, after the meeting, the guys the click wanted to see given a bigger push, which surprisingly was one of them was Chris Candido, uh, were still in the same position doing jobs, and the ones they thought were useless and shouldn't be around at all. I guess they had asked for Backlund to, I don't know, you want to say be fired, but be demoted, not be used as much. Uh, Backlund were now getting a renewed push, so. Meltzer's spin on this is Vince didn't listen to the click. I don't know if I agree with that or not, uh, but you know, they did run a lot of guys off and the comma and bam, bam Bigelow did officially give notice Bigelow done at the survivor series comma done also before the end of the year. I know he pops back up during the Royal rumble match, but he's, he's basically gone while Bob Holly is now staying on who he also gave notice after being put on the survivor series pay-per-view show. 
And Jean-Pierre Lafitte is at home recovering from that hernia surgery we talked about in the last episode, but nobody seems to know for sure if he's going to come back or not. I don't believe he does. So that's where we're at. A lot of guys still leaving town because of that, that click nonsense. Yeah, is Kama, did Kama leave because of the click, or was it other reasons? I don't think so. I think Kama was just uh, done at this point. I, I don't think Kama was going anywhere. He's good friends with The Undertaker. So we, we'll see him back. Yeah, that's I, what I think I Kama saying. just probably wanted that's to go back to the clubs for a little bit, maybe. Uh, I was just curious because I know he's boys with The Undertaker, so it's odd to me that he would let, for one, The Undertaker let the click do anything to him, and two, why you want to give that up, but uh, that makes sense if he's just burnt out and ready to go. That makes sense. At all. That makes complete sense. Yeah, and I think, I think the click was wise enough to know who not to mess with, and I don't mean just in the fact that who could beat their ass. I, I just mean it's just better not to rock certain boats, and I feel like they probably knew not to rock a boat like Kama or you know, yeah, the Undertaker's crew. <laughs> yeah. So we kick Raw off, November 27th Raw, with a video clip from last week where we talked about Shawn Michaels' collapse during the match with Owen Hart. A very, uh, It was a huge, huge angle at the time. Nothing like that had ever been done, at least in the WWF. We'd seen a couple of heart attack-type angles at World Class and, and things like that in the past, but this was pr- a pretty big deal, and it was done very, very well from all parties involved, from Owen Hart selling to Jerry Lawler selling to the referee, Vince McMahon. Really well, good job by everyone in, in, in general and left everyone wondering, was this a work because it is pro wrestling or was this real? So really well done. Uh, of course, this week it becomes a little more obvious that it's probably a work because they're replaying video of it. They're discussing it on the TV show uh, at length. So that's how we kick the show off and we move into the first match. It's Ahmed Johnson taking on Rad Radford, Louis McCauley. And Vince does this lovely line of, It's Ahmed! It's Ahmed Johnson! So, Ahmed Johnson to the ring. Rad Radford attacks, but to no avail, Rad gets thrown to the floor. Bob Backlund's out in the crowd campaigning. That'll be important later in the show. Rad Radford, brief heat on Ahmed before Ahmed makes the big comeback with that scissor kick. And you were right when you pointed that out. I think it was at the Survivor Series. He does the scissor kick, but he uses the outside leg as the the actual move that he's connecting with, the leg that he's connecting with, looks very awkward. And that's that's the way you can break, break an ankle or something, but uh, does, does a scissors boot, too. Ahmed doesn't do these scissors moves very long, but I was just like, damn, man. And then a spine buster and the tiger bomb, yet to be named Pearl River Plunge. Ahmed Johnson gets the win here, two minutes, 46 seconds. And we learned that the December In Your House pay-per-view, Ahmed Johnson will be taking on Dean Douglas. And DeMelt says, originally, this was supposed to be Ahmed Johnson versus King Kong Bundy. But with Douglas wanting out of the company, this will be Douglas's way of being written out of the company. It's going to be Ahmed Johnson supposed to be squashing Dean Douglas on the pay-per-view. We'll see if that happens. Yeah, I doubt that happens. I've been, I mean, I get the King Kong Bundy. You come in slamming Yoko, and then you do it at Survivor Series. So you just, you're using, you're going to use these big guys to get him over and, that would have made more sense than Dean Douglas, but if he was trying to job somebody out, that makes sense there too. So, um, yeah, I would have been fine with either one. You kind of knew what they were doing with Ahmed and what that match was going to be, so it didn't matter who was in the ring with him. So we get a post we get a post match promo at ringside 
Jerry Lawler interviews Ahmed about his match with Dean Douglas at In Your House. Obviously, Dean Douglas interrupts the promo, and Dean says the road to being a superstar goes through Dean's classroom, the ring. No, Dean, that goes through the click, and that road is closed for you. <laughs> Anywho, yes. Anywho, <laughs> Ahmed tells him to ring the bell. School's in session, or ring the bell. School's in session, sucker. And Ahmed hops in the ring, but Dean has to be held back by referees. So I did like that dynamic of Dean Douglas's character. He wasn't a coward. He was, ah, no, I'll wait. You can fuck with the ranch fries at the pay per view. Now, Dean Douglas tries to get in the ring. He gets up on the apron, almost gets in the ring before he's held back by several officials. So uh, they're trying to add a little bit of uh, intrigue to the match, even, even if it was meant to be a squash. Yeah. Uh, Dean's doing his part to try to stay somewhat relevant in the shark infested waters that, that he's swimming in. Just an overall bad, bad decision by Shane Douglas here to come to the WWF. Terrible decision. So Vince McMahon gives us a Shawn Michaels injury update, noting only friends knew that Shawn Michaels was suffering from dizziness, blackouts, and depression, which were all signs of post-concussion syndrome, blaming that thug attack in Syracuse. Footage was then shown of Michaels sustaining the razor's edge, the power bomb from Sid, the leg drop from Yokozuna at Survivor Series, before finally being kicked in the head by Owen last week on Raw. Footage then aired of Michaels being taken by ambulance, to the hospital after last week's show and closing remarks of Michael's that Michael's planned to return to the ring as soon as possible, uh, which is kind of odd because uh, we'll get to that when we get to the doctor and all that good stuff. But that's our injury update right now with Shawn Michaels. Where do you stand right now as a fan? If you're watching this right now with the Shawn Michaels storyline. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've kind of talked about this kind of off air a little bit. I'm, I guess I'm weird. I never really, I don't know if I was just young and naive and didn't really care or I was just so just caught up in that it was a TV show more than anything else. You even had me questioning my thoughts. So I called my friend that I watched wrestling with growing up and uh, he's like, yeah, man, that's kind of how we just took it. It was just wrestling's on Monday. We watched it for the hour that it was on and we kind of just went about our business. Uh, played video games the rest of the week, and we waited till Monday to see the next show. We didn't really talk about it very much, things like that. I think really the only thing we talked about a shit ton was the lawn dart <laughs> with Rey Mysterio. So kind of getting off on a, a little bit, but I just felt like it was just a part of the show. I, I never questioned if something was real or fake, unless I was told otherwise or people just disappear or not show up. It was just a part of the show to me. I I, I never took it that serious to the point where I was buying into stories or things like that. It was just it was just a TV show to me. That that's just the way I saw it. So this it wow, never really hit home. It's really it's it just really, really I've never heard anyone describe it like that before. So that's why it's just it really caught. I'm just really trying to even comprehend. It. Like the whole point of the storylines are to suck you in emotionally, and you kind of just took it as a week to week television program. So it's just really I don't know. I just I've never heard anyone describe it like that before. So it really, con- I don't want to say confused me. It was just something new for me to absorb and take in and, and try to learn from, I guess, because uh, I certainly, you know, anything, anything I was watching, I was emotionally invested in. So I, I was following the storyline. I wanted to see what was going to happen next week. When, when Sean threw Marty through the window, it wasn't just a guy throwing a guy through a window. And then next week is just a whole new story. It was, 
wow, holy shit. And obviously by then I knew wrestling was, you know, a work at whatever, however old or whatever, but it was still, you still, I don't know, man, you lived in the moment, even though it wasn't real, it was real to me, damn it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I understand completely. I, I, I don't know if I was just old enough or I wasn't at that point to where I was buying into the storylines. It's something that came along later, but even at nine years old, man, I just, I didn't, again, like, I didn't watch the weekend stuff. I didn't watch Superstars Challenge, whatever else was on Action Zone, Mania. Apparently nobody else was watching them either at this point because they were (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I never did. So, like, I never saw, like, the wall-to-wall coverage and really, really them emphasizing the importance of what this is and and what's going on. Right. So I I just felt like uh, it was just kind of there. I mean, I, I, I... I, I'm trying not to discredit it because I remember it as if it just happened. And when it first happened, I was like, holy shit, is he okay? What's going on? And then like after the show was over, maybe for like 20, 30 minutes, it was like, oh damn, like, is he going to come back? And then after that, I, I just kind of forgot about it and uh, went about my business and other things. And Monday was over. Wrestling was over and I'll find out what happens next Monday. Right. It's more episodic to me than, oh my God, I got to see what happened. Like, uh, I was kind of out of buying the pay-per-view, so I never really seen them. Like, I didn't get the payoffs, that sort of stuff. So uh, I just I, I I enjoyed the show. It was just entertainment more than anything for right. me at that point. But yeah, it's 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 odd and it's weird. I know, but that's just that's how I remember it. I don't remember yeah. like how I mean, there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's just something I had never heard somebody describe wrestling before, and so that was really intriguing. It was very different. And I, I think the other thing too is I never, I, I never went to the shows or I, I never like, oh my god, I gotta pay to see this. And this is gonna sound terrible, but to be honest with you, one hundred percent, the only show that I was sold on that I had to see and had to pay for was Starcade '97. Like I had, like I had to see that show. I had to see the match between Steve and Hogan. And other than that, like I've never really felt oh my god must see i have to see this match right i i, I never had that connection to anything else story-wise in, in wrestling yeah, um I mean, yeah I, I can i can go back years i mean i had to see hogan and warrior i had to see warrior and savage i had to see a lot of things i mean and i'm referencing I mean, and i'm still even older at that point than you're discussing what you are here in 95 uh, but I'm just trying to yeah. think, you know, think back. I had to see Survivor Series. I had to see those. Those, Just seeing the car, oh you know, God. with all those guys in the ring together. So these were things I had to see as a kid. But I get what you're saying. I had to see Sting and Flair. I had to see these things. I mean, there was, you know, a certain era where, you know, there was a lot of good stuff going on, though. Yeah, and I, I we're, we're kind of going long here on this portion, but it's just uh, I was too young. Now, I'm not going to say, like, I, I did get WrestleMania 7 on pay-per-view. I don't remember why or how. I, maybe my parents was a, re- a fan of wrestling. But I was glued to that TV, and if anybody asked me, WrestleMania 7, Savage and Warrior, was the reason is the reason I'm a wrestling fan. I bought into that match even at four or five years old. I was I was hooked, line, and right. sinker into right. that match. Yeah. And the, But that was something that was happening at the moment. I didn't know the backstory of how they got there other than the video they showed leading up to the match like on the card or on the show but i was in the moment with that match it's just i think that's more of my thing i like matches more than i do 
necessarily the story. I, I can buy you. into a match, and it's, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird for sure. Well, we'll move on with the show. We won't get too invested in that. I'm sure we'll have a lot more conversations like that as, the, as these episodes go on. You can call it coincidence, you can call it whatever you want, but on the same night Nitro airs a tag team ladies match featuring Japanese talent, the WWF features a tag team Japanese talent, or a, a tag team women's match featuring Japanese talent as well. It's Aja Kong and Tomoko Watanabe taking on Kyoko Inoue and Alundra Blaze. And, you know, you would think it would be Jerry Lawler with all the stereotype nonsense, but it's Vince McMahon throughout this entire match. And if you can just bear with me, I have a shit ton of notes here. So I'm going to try to run through them because I know we ran a little long there. So I'm going to try to run through the notes, and then I would love to hear your opinion on some of this stuff. So it starts right away with Barry Dedensky at ringside trying to shill the WWF World Champion Bret Hart t-shirt, which uh, it notes that Bret Hart's now a three-time world champion. Vince McMahon refers to Dedensky as Hop Singh, which was the chef on Bonanza, a Chinese chef on Bonanza. So Vince already immediately, just because there's Japanese talent in the ring, begins to begin with the Japanese stereotypes or slurs or whatever you want to call these things. I'll let you guys make your own decisions as we move along here. During the bout, it was also noted Mr. Perfect would be on America Online the following night and that Mr. Perfect would be replacing Jerry Lawler as co-host of WWE Superstars. Of course, Hennig now back after returning at the Survivor Series. Match begins with the heels attacking. They get heat on Kyoko Inoue. Watanabe misses a springboard reverse crossbody on Inoue. And Inoue, with an upside-down surfboard, almost pins herself. Match is going good, but I can't help but hear the commentary. Vince McMahon says Asha Kong has extra chromosomes, referring to her as an, an ape, basically. And she is shaped like a schmo. And I'm like, what the fuck is a schmo? So I go online and I Google schmo. You know, maybe uh, I'm, I'm too young for this, but there was a, a comic strip, which I have heard of, Lil Abner. And I, and apparently Schmo, a Schmo is a character in the Lil Abner comic. And it, it appears to be, and you can Google this and look it up if you want to, Steve, but it, 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 the best way I can describe it, it looks like a dumpy seal with feet and no arms. <laughs> That's pretty much what Aja Kong is here. She's a Schmo. And Vince also alludes that her grandfather was King Kong because she's Aja Kong and she has extra chromosomes. So this isn't just about mocking the Japanese. It's about mocking women who aren't shaped the way Vince feels they need to be shaped. And don't get me wrong, in 1995 when I saw Aja Kong, I had never seen a woman built like this before. So I, too, in 1995, was like, holy shit, what the hell's wrong with this lady? But, I mean, just Vince McMahon just lays it on thick here the entire match. More so than actually covering the match. And <laughs> Vince even says, much like Lady Di, Aja Kong's a proponent of safe sex, of course, alluding to how ugly she is. So Vince McMahon doing bad Bobby Heenan jokes here. Just terrible. Uh, back to the match, though. Inoue comes in, walks up the ropes with a falling back elbow. Very impressive top rope on to Watanabe. Watanabe comes back though with, with that springboard reverse crossbody she tried to hit earlier in the match. Goes to the top rope, but Kyoko Inoue runs up the ropes like Kurt Angle. And Kyoko's a, a pretty big gal, and she's she can really get around the ring. Runs up the ropes with her arm whips. Watanabe off the top rope, but Aja Kong breaks up the pin. Alundra Blaze and Aja, for the first time in the match, took that long for them to get in the ring together. Blaze with an enzigiri. Better be careful. Might knock her out. And uh, middle rope drop kicks. 
two middle rope drop kicks by Alundra Blaze, but she misses a third. Aja Kong misses a middle rope splash of her own on Alundra and hot tags to Kyoko Inoue. Inoue back in, ducks a back fist, but Aja with a Saito suplex and then, holy balls, knocks her head off with a spinning back fist <laughs> and ends it. And uh, in about seven minutes, eight minutes with commercials, seven or eight minutes with commercials. So we only get about six minutes of the match on the actual show. But damn, what a fun little fast match. And Vince McMahon, this was Blaze's last WWF appearance. And these girls are over, just like the girls on Nitro were over. Man, both companies just dropped the fucking ball. And it pisses me off. It pissed me off when I was watching these and listening to the crowd response and writing this. And now that I'm reading this again, it pisses me off here 25 years later. That's how much of a ball they dropped. And, um, you know, you can comment on that. You can comment on the match and definitely comment on Vince McMahon. Oh, my God. Like, I'm with you, man. I was I couldn't help but not listen to the stupid shit Vince McMahon was saying. Jim Ross was definitely needed. I, I felt like at Survivor Series, I know when we was doing the watch along, obviously we don't have the audio on or anything, but I've seen the show enough to know that Jim Ross kind of oversteps his bounds a little bit and keeps the match on topic. You know, Mr. Perfect's going in. Vince McMahon has no idea what the hell's going on, who's who. So Jim Ross talked a lot during that match, but it was getting these gals over, getting them, getting them to the point where you could respect what the hell they're doing. Again, like I said in the watch along, I was looking for that back fist because Jim Ross hyped it up during the match. He's like, you got to watch out for it. So I was looking for it. He, was, he did a tremendous job. This was the absolute... This is a complete 180, the complete opposite of what Jim Ross did the night before on Survivor Series. This was ridiculous. It was stupid. It was unnecessary. And it's just like, why are you going to pay these people just to run them out there to to discriminate against them and just trash them? I get jokes. That's fine. Whatever. But even in 95, this felt uncomfortable. I mean, extra chromosomes. Are you serious? Roseanne Barr got canceled for that stuff. And Vince McMahon's getting away with it in 95 like it's nothing. And um, it's just it's just stupid and it's unfortunate because these women are, like you said, are over. They put on a hell of a show two nights in a row. We see Aja Kong again and Caparita Asari in another show. Right. So, I mean, they, these, guys, these women are going out and busting their ass for you and all you're doing is just trashing them on commentary. And it's... Uh, it's ridiculous, man. It, it takes away from what they're doing, and it's unfortunate. Up next is the return of Brother Love, and immediately Vince McMahon gets his digs in on Bruce Pritchard, mocking him for gaining weight. Vince used to hate Bruce getting fatter and fatter. Bruce tells those stories of uh, if they if he was at a carnival and he was or or some type of uh, event like that where the WWF was running a couple of matches, and Vince would run into Bruce eating a corn dog. Who eats deep-fried food on a stick? What is that? It's as if Vince McMahon had never heard tell of a corn dog in his entire life. But anyways, we'll get, we'll get back to the Brother Love show. Brother Love, his first guest here is WWF Heavyweight Champion, Bret Hart. And I love you, yes, Brother Bret Hart, yes, Brother Champion! Brother Love notes The Undertaker. Wants to challenge Brett for the belt, and Brother Love is the man that brought the Undertaker to the WWF. And also, the Bulldog is looking for the title shot, and he'll have his match at the In Your House pay per view. Love prevents Brett from responding repeatedly until Brett finally just takes the microphone and takes over the promo. Brett says he won't discuss the Undertaker at this time, but he wants redemption for losing to the Bulldog at SummerSlam 92. 
And uh, that's basically the way we end this segment. But we don't. Because as Brett thinks he's done, out of nowhere comes Bob Backlund, who was in the crowd earlier, attempting to push, <laughs> push the crowd to vote for him in the next president candidacy. But instead, Bob Backlund's in the ring now. He attacks Bret Hart with the cross-faced chicken wing. And I wrote, why? Will this ever end? Backlund hadn't done shit since like WrestleMania 11. Now all of a sudden he's we're wacky Bob Backlund's back again. It's like Vince McMahon just takes turns. Oh, ha, wouldn't it be funny if we just push Bob Backlund again? Ha ha, pal. So Backlund to the ring out of nowhere. Crossface chicken wing on Bret Hart. Brother loves laying in the, the, the verbal bullshit on Bret as uh, he's getting the hold applied to him. And wacky Bob Backlund's back. Why? I'm with you, man. I put what the fuck. I don't. I don't say that word. But man, why? Why are we going back to Bob Backlund and Bret Hart? Like this is ran its course. Just utter garbage. The brother love segment was what it was. It was fine. It served its purpose better than anything Funk's Grill ever did. Um, but <laughs> Bob Backlund coming out at the end, it's just it's a head scratcher. And your note here says it best. Will this ever end? <laughs> I just think. It, it needs to go away and never come back. And hopefully, I'm pretty sure this is it. I don't recall them ever doing anything else again after this one, besides yeah. the match that we got coming up. But right. thank God for that. But, man, Bob Backlund, 95, just needs to go away. Yeah. The show continues on. It's Triple H in the ring, Hunter Hearst Helmsley over John Crystal. We have a hog pen match coming up at In Your House. It's going to be Triple H taking on Henry Godwin. We get a hog insert promo. He's down on his farm with his pigs, introduces some of them by name, says Triple H will meet him in person at In Your House. Uh, we see a clip before the match also with Howard Finkel getting slopped at MSG, and you know the way they treated Howard, you have to think this was a rib. I don't think Howard probably knew it was coming. Poor guy sitting ringside uh, in his tux, conducting the uh, ring, ring introductions, and winds up getting slop on his head. Now, I can't say that's a fact, but just knowing some of the things they did to Howard just feels like this probably was a rib on him as well. Uh, getting back to the match, though, Triple H quickly puts away John Crystal with a pedigree. One minute, 40 seconds. Promo time with Jim Cornette and Owen Hart. Jim Cornette says everyone fears Owen now that he took Shawn Michaels out. Nobody wants to wrestle Owen Hart. So here's what they're going to do. Owen has an open contract in your house. He's on a roll hospitalizing people. I think he's just one person, but apparently he's on a roll hospitalizing people. And so there's an open contract. Anyone can sign it. Hmm. Let's see what happens there within your house and Owen Hart. I think we got some information on that in the next episode. We close the show. Main event time. It's The Undertaker scheduled to take on Kama. And this may be the only time I, <laughs> I'm thankful to see Sir Mo because it's Kama to the ring, but he's on crutches. He doesn't have a cast. He doesn't have bandages. He doesn't have a brace. But somehow he has a leg injury. And so Kama can't go. It's Kama and DiBiase at ringside. DiBiase says Kama's injured. He can't wrestle the end. This felt like Kama had already given notice. He doesn't want to be there, but he's there. So he's just not going to do a job on the way out. Is the way it feels to me anyway. DiBiase announces Kama's replacement. Is it another member of the Million Dollar Corporation? Is it the, the kid? Is it Sid? Is it Bundy? No, it's randomly Sir Moe. And out to the ring, it's The Undertaker to take on Sir Mo. But Kama remains at ringside for this match, as does Ted DiBiase. Kama actually still has the urn melted down into the chain. 
So the Undertaker, as you might imagine, dominates poor Sir Mo. Kama and DiBiase finally distract and beat down the Taker on the floor. Mo does a little bit of offense, but Taker quickly with a comeback, flying clothesline on Mo. Taker out to the floor. Kama drops the crutches, attacks the Undertaker. So it was all a ruse, obviously, as we already suspected going into the match. Kama wasn't even really hurt. And so Kama uh, drops the crutches, beats down the Undertaker. He seems fine, but the Undertaker fights back. Kama and DiBiase run away. Undertaker back in the ring. Choke slam to Mo, gets the win in five minutes. I wasn't happy to see either one of those guys, uh, Mo or Kama. <laughs> Just terrible. I, I get it. I mean, the roster's thin. You really can't blame them. They're, they're thinning out, and there's just not a lot there. But Mo, really, that's the best you got? Just a lackluster main event to an overall lackluster show. So Kama dropped the chain that used to be, that was melted down and turned into, it was the urn that was melted down and turned into this giant, ridiculous chain that Kama wore around his neck. The Undertaker gets the chain back after the match, but King Mabel emerges at ringside. And while Yokozuna also comes to ringside and stands off of the Undertaker, King Mabel from behind attacks Paul Bearer, steals the chain. Mabel runs off with the chain. Yokozuna winds up doing nothing with the Undertaker, just there to basically distract him. And so now Mabel has the chain, has the urn, if you will. So the Undertaker still doesn't have his supernatural powers back. As of yet. I feel bad for The Undertaker. Yeah, this went he on forever. The of 90, 95. My goodness. I can't count how many people played keep away with this urn during 1995 before The Undertaker finally gets it back. I think he gets it back at In Your House, but yeah, just it's, it's lazy. I guess when you don't really have anything else for The Undertaker, uh, what, what else can you do? I mean... You yeah, he chased some... the urn. Wasn't it Royal Rumble? Wasn't it Bundy that took the urn? Or did he take it at Royal Rumble? Yeah. When the, yeah. And the, so Undertaker hasn't had the urn in his possession the entire year because Bundy comes out and takes it during the IRS match. Then when Undertaker wrestles Bundy for the urn, Kama comes out and takes it then, or it winds up taking it shortly thereafter anyway. I can't really remember. And then he says he's going to melt it down into a chain, which he does. The chain's much larger than the urn, but that's neither here nor there. And then Kama, even though The Undertaker beat him, put him in a casket at SummerSlam, must have still had the chain, which I didn't even realize. And then, of course, Mabel takes it here. And he keeps it for a few weeks before The Undertaker finally gets it back in your house. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. I know that must have really yeah. pissed you off. It's just unfortunate. Somebody like The Undertaker had to deal with this shit all year. My goodness. So segment of the week, Steve, is it the ladies again? Is it the brother love show return or the Taker versus uh, Mo? What, what, what uh, you tell me? What you can I go? Can I go with nothing again? Oh wow! Uh, I just okay. Like, I felt again is the ladies' match was awesome. I, I enjoy it, and I, I'm going with the ladies. But overall, as a whole, these this show, the Nitro and the Raw, was kind of a dumpster fire for the most part. I, I don't know they what the deal good. is. They were not very good shows at all. I thought it was very boring outside of that women's match. Uh, I have no interest in Taker and Mabel. Uh, the squashes were okay, and then that leaves Ahmed. Uh, he looked sloppy uh, with that scissor kick and some of the other stuff. Um, Brother Love was all right. Nothing special. So it, right. by default, it's the women. And that's not a knock on them at all by saying by default. They just were that damn good, and they stuck out that much on this show because everything else was trash. Right. And? The ratings are in. 
the WWF Monday Night Raw does a 2.5 rating and a 3.4 share for the first time after Shawn Michaels. And WCW does a 2.3 rating and a 3.3 share. So WWF 2.5, WCW 2.3. Doesn't take a math whiz to figure out the WWF wins this one as they basically are trying to promote the show as the fallout after the Shawn Michaels collapse while WCW puts Arn and Pillman versus Sting and Luger in their main event. And this also should have been a WCW pay-per-view bump. Remember that normal .3 rating they expect after a pay-per-view? I don't know if it happens or doesn't happen here. If it happens, then boy, they would have had a scary rating uh, had they not had the bump. But either way, they still don't win the ratings here, Steve, this week. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, I bet you if people did pay for that WCW pay-per-view, it was probably like, oh, here we go again with this stupid shit with Hogan. So they probably didn't even care to get the fallout, whereas that you had that huge angle last week on Raw. Of course, everybody's going to want to tune in to find out what's going on with Shawn Michaels. So it, it, it's genius on Vince's part to do that huge angle the week before WCW pay-per-view. That way you can kind of kill that that uh, bump, kind of like how they did with Survivor Series a, couple, a week ago. Um, Nitro, they did that huge angle there to still the WCW or the WWF pay-per-view bump. So these guys know what, what to expect, what's going to come with the pay-per-view bumps. So they're doing things to negate that. And that's just, that's one of those things that people don't really talk about as far as these, uh, these battles within that we like to talk about here on the warfare show. Right. And, uh, the real winner. And if, if you're just not joining us here on the, uh, money warfare program, we always do the real winner. It's not necessarily who won in the ratings. It's who we decide, uh, who we thought uh, had the better show. And for me this week, it's got to be Nitro. Again, neither show was very good. Both of them had one solid wrestling match. Both of them were a tag team women's match, which is just crazy. Think about that, Steve. How often? Never. Especially in the 90s, even the first 10 years of the 2000s, are you going to say the women's match was likely the best thing on the show? And it was not only the best thing on the show for one show, it was the best thing on the show for both shows. But I chose Nitro because it was the lesser of two evils. It had less shitty shit on it like i like the even though it was two minutes long i like the johnny b bad ddp segment obviously i like the women's match and that alone two segments to raw's one segment uh that beats out raw for me so that's i'm going nitro yeah i'm with you i didn't like either show at all i've kind of made that known uh but i went with nitro as well just because they have more angles and story development that i cared about not necessarily the hogan stuff right uh, but I, I, I've stated before, I, I like the Sting and Luger story that they were trying to tell. I was, for some reason, I was always intrigued, and I felt like it was one of the few things that they consistently did week over week that wasn't terrible, and the wheels never really fell off of it. And so add that with the Johnny B. Bad stuff and the women's match. Um, there's two or three things there that was somewhat decent on that show, so I, I definitely went with Nitro as well. We'll move into the next week now. It's WCW Monday Nitro for December 4th, 1995. We're in Phoenix, Arizona at the American West Arena in front of 9,000 fans. That might be the largest amount of fans uh, for a WCW Nitro as of yet. But only 3,000 of those fans are paid, so only a 33% uh, fan payoff here for for WCW as they uh, apparently give away roughly 6,000 papered tickets. Insane. Yeah, it is insane. I'm with you, man. Where the hell was I when all this papering was going on? I, yeah. I know, like, the radio contests and stuff like that, but I never messed with them because it was hard as hell to win. But, man, 
giving away 6,000 tickets. There's 6,000 people in there for free. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, they'd, run, they'd run into malls and places like that and just start handing them out. Like, hand over, here you go, hand over fist, just boom, 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 just anywhere they could find large groups of people. You want to go to Raw? You want to go to Nitro? You want to go to a pay-per-view? Could you imagine yeah. you're just wandering through the mall? Damn, man, I can't afford tonight's pay-per-view. And then dude's just like, here you go, four front row, not front row, but four seats to tonight's pay-per-view. Holy shit. Oh, my right. God. Crazy. I, I- I think there's a territory like early, in the early '90s, Dallas. I think I think it was Dallas. I don't want to be wrong. You probably know this better than I do. But they would just hand out like three or four thousand tickets every week and only get like four hundred people to show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would get like four four hundred people to show up. So yeah, um, just because you're giving away doesn't mean people are going to show up. But that's a pretty no. Big but they sh- they showed up here in Phoenix apparently. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We kick off the show with Bischoff, Mongo, and Bobby Heenan. This week, Bobby Heenan has a chip bag laying in front of him, and there's a, he calls it a weasel tail hanging out of the bag. It looks like a raccoon tail. It's obviously a prop. The, the bag's moving around like as if there's an actual animal inside of it. Ridiculous. And Mongo has Pepe dressed up as an angel this week. I don't know why I keep noting what the hell Pepe's dressed up like every week, but I, I don't know what the hell goes on with these opening segments on Nitro. Eric Bischoff notes that WCW has put Hulk Hogan, the Giant, and Ric Flair on probation, so I like the continuity there. Hogan decked Randy Anderson, Ric Flair decked Nick Patrick. I don't know what necessarily the Giant did other than attacking Randy Savage, which just seems like your typical wrestling attack. But these three guys are on probation. We'll see how long that that scares anybody away. I don't think it's very long into this program before Hulk Hogan disobeys the probation, basically shits all over it. And we get ready for our first match in the ring. It's the WCW Tag Team Champions Harlem Heat. They've won the titles back from the American Males. But now, oh, you hear that music? Steve, do you know who this is? I know who this is. But I'm going to do everybody a favor this week. I'm not going to do American Males karaoke. But I'll let you listen to the song for a minute. Yeah. Dig it. When you say that I'm coming, better run for cover. Girls, you don't need a weekend lover. Say it, Steve. All right, that's enough of that. That was fun, though. Fun while it lasted. Uh, for me, anyway. <laughs> Your boys. Yes, they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> you say so. <laughs> so the American males make their way down to ringside. They probably gave a few ladies the clap on the way. And nice double teaming from the males early on. Double backdrop on Booker T. Way into the sky. I'll say this much. You can shit on the American males gimmick all you want. But they're much better in the ring than the dynamic dudes were ever were. Oh, that's that's a given. Uh, these guys maybe for a little bit actually bought into the gimmick, did their best to get it over. Whereas the dynamic dudes never really tried. So um, whenever you try, you're gonna be look decent. Whether it gets over or not or works doesn't matter as long as you put in a little bit of effort. That's all you can ask for, really. Scotty Riggs misses a charge into the corner of the Harlem Heat takeover. So Bischoff has already busted out the. Back leg round kick, the front leg ass kick, the fuck you balls <laughs> kick. This week, it's the jump wheel kick 
from Booker T. You can add that to Eric Bischoff's repertoire. As Rob Parker comes down to ringside, he brings Sherry, who is Harlem Heat's manager, a ring. I guess he proposes to Sherry here. They're going to get hitched. And Sherry leaves the ring, leaves the match, leaves the Harlem Heat to go off with uh, Colonel Rob Parker here. And uh, anyways, we see A.C. Green in the crowd, and he has words with Booker T. A.C. Green, of course, a a former NBA player. Scotty Riggs, uh, Hope Spots look absolutely awful, I wrote. And he does a jackknife pin and a sunset flip, and both moves were sloppy as best. It's like he couldn't rotate over, flip over into the jackknife. The sunset flip, it's like he forgot to tuck his head. He just kind of, it's just really shitty stuff. And we just saw Riggs really screw up uh, in a tag team match against Lex Luger, I think, in Ming uh, recently as well. So Riggs is not looking too hot, and I don't remember him being this bad. So I don't know if he's just having some off nights or what's going on here. He can't perform. Maybe it's like the teams that can't perform on Monday Night Football. Maybe Riggs just has those jitters. I don't know. Uh, But Riggs does wind up getting his knees up on a Booker T pump splash in the corner, a.k.a. a Vader bomb. Makes the hot tag to Marcus Bagwell. Bagwell in right away with his finisher, the Fisherman Suplex on Booker T. But Stevie Ray in to break it up. Riggs is then with the referee, which allows Booker T to sneak in. Harlem Hangover on Bagwell. Gets the win in seven minutes, 45 seconds. There was some weird shit going on in the finish. And I wonder if Riggs was legitimately knocked goofy. I wouldn't doubt it. That Harlem Hangover was very dangerous. Booker landed on quite a few faces with that thing, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was a little, not, like you said, not silly. I, I do got to point out here, I know you trashed Mongo, and rightfully so, but at the beginning of this match, I think one of the teams is coming down the aisle. He does mention, he's like, I can't believe we're giving away Savage and Luger on, on free TV. This should be on pay-per-view, uh, like the title match, and uh, he's the only, really the only one talking sense here, and if that's the case, then WCW's in trouble for sure. I did want to point that out, that he did an excellent job of putting over that title match later, talking about how it shouldn't be free on TV. Yeah, that's not even the first time he's done that. I think he did that with Hogan and Sting as well. Maybe even Hogan and Luger were the world title match. I don't remember, but he's done that more than once. And yeah, it's always scary when Mongo is the voice of reason in in your company. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I know he does it again in a week or two when we have another title match. Like They're just giving away title matches on free TV like they're candy. Talk about killing the killing your business but yeah that's, that's not this isn't the time or place for that but yeah promo time with sting and lex luger sting says he doesn't agree with lex's business decisions aka being managed by jimmy hart but they're still best friends sting thinks lex might beat macho man for the belt but sting is in the triangle match at starcade i should point that out we'll talk about that in a second to face the world champion uh, wouldn't he wrestle lex either way triangle or world title match so he's trying to say if Lex beats Savage for the belt, Sting's going to win the triangle match and have to go on to wrestle his buddy. But I'm thinking, even if Lex doesn't win the world title match here tonight, wouldn't he still have to wrestle Lex as part of the triangle match? So either way, he has to beat Lex Luger here uh, at Starcade. But Sting's just selling it as he only has to wrestle Lex if they go to the world title match together. Anyways, Lex says he will be champion tonight, and if they meet at Cade, all bets are off. Uh, I, I wonder if Sting's just mentioned like that's how he's going to get the title match. He, if it's for the belt, he's going to take him out. I don't know. I, this is one of those things. I, this was okay, I guess. I, I don't know. It wasn't very entertaining. I do like the story, but this this promo was kind of eh. Just I think there. I think a story like this has to be told more in the ring and what you do physically versus these 
week to week promos that really don't even need to be there. Like, yeah. It's back to the ring with Sting. And it's funny too, because Sting tries to leave. He starts going back up the ramp to go to the back and he hears his music playing and he goes, Oh shit, I have a match. And he turns back around and walks to the ringside. Sting getting ready to take on Kurosawa, but there's no Rob Parker because he's off with Sherry and who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Just use your imagination. Somebody's oh. enjoying themselves. Yeah. My God. Anyways, <laughs> I'm sorry. I started using my imagination. I was picturing Sherry sitting atop a 10 uh, foot pole. Anyways, we'll get back to this match. I should note that Sting wrestled Kurosawa on Saturday night because that's what they advertised last week on uh, Nitro, that they'd be wrestling on Saturday night. I did look up the results. Obviously, Sting won that match here, but I I didn't go back and watch it, so I'm not really sure how. Kurosawa in this match dominates early with all the basics. He tries to break Sting's arm, just like he did Robo Warrior Hawk over the summer. Uh, Works the arm for most of the duration of the match. Sting begins to no-sell Kurosawa's chops. It's the Stinger Splash and the Scorpion Deathlock, the Kiss of Death. Beating a guy with your finisher, submission hold. Sting gets the win, 2 minutes, 36 seconds. We've seen Sting protect guys in the past, like Dean Malenko with the cradle, uh, inside cradle to get the win. Here he does the Scorpion, which doesn't bode well for the future of Kurosawa here in WCW. Kurosawa obviously on his way down the ladder, uh, jobbing in two minutes by submission, not protected. WCW builds guys up like this, and like an old toy, man. Just They get tired of them, they just get done with them. It's like... They've done the same thing with uh, Craig Pittman. Now they're doing it with Kurosawa. Just unfortunate. Yeah, and what's crazy is at the very beginning of the match, they're hyping him up. Like, you know, he's about he's all about breaking bones and things like that. And then <laughs> two and a half minutes later, he's tapping out to a scorpion deathlock after a stinger splash, which, like you said, is the kiss of death. So uh, that's it. That's a wrap for Kurosawa. He's that's irrelevant at this point. Very unfortunate, too. Mm-hmm. I agree. So we learn a little bit about Starcade 95 because we're not doing the Saturday night program. They mentioned it here on Nitro that there will be a best of seven series between WCW and the wrestlers of New Japan. And the winners of that, I don't know, what do they do? Do they take over W? I don't even know what the hell the fucking point of this. Like, what happens at the end of this? I don't even remember. I don't think anything happens. Okay. Bragging rights? Sure. Uh, Why not? I think that's it. Also, as part of the start, because they didn't think the Japanese matches would be enough to sell the pay-per-view on its own, they've added a triangle match uh, between Sting and Luger and Flair. And the winner of that match will then take on Randy Savage for the world title later on in the pay-per-view. They added that after booking the Best of Seven series because they didn't think it would draw on its own and they shot down some other ideas that were originally pitched for this pay-per-view. So what do they do? They go and create this triangle match and this world title match. The problem is it involves a bunch of guys that are already part of the best of seven that have been advertised. So <laughs> some of these guys have the potential of working three times that night, including, you know, Luger Sting in the best of seven. I can't remember right now, but Luger is certainly one of them. Randy Savage is part of the best of seven and he has to defend his title later in the night. Now I not, not the best of booking. I thought there too many guys on your roster to have to make guys pull double, triple duty. Yeah, I, I don't know what they're... I can't remember who said it. I, I don't know what... It was one of the WWE DVDs where they was talking about, like, Starcade and how there's a law here uh, outside of maybe 94 and ni- 93 and 94. There's just a bunch of gimmicks to sell this show. 
And after this one, they kind of got back on track to hyping it up as that big show feel. But yeah, this is just one of those, again, it feels like a throwaway show. It's really based around that triangle world title combo. Nobody really cares about the WCW versus Japan. You're not doing anything to promote it except talking about it. And again, it just feels like a throwaway show because all they care about is Nitro. Pay-per-views are a second at this point. That's completely ass backwards because your TV should push people to go buy the shows to pay to see what you want them to see because that's how you make your money. And when Hogan's taking 25% of your cut, you better be selling a shit ton of pay-per-views and they're just not doing that. Yeah. And this show, I have, after I've watched uh, ahead all the way up to, I think I'm already in 96 as far as what I've watched. And I have zero interest in watching Starcade. I know we have it on the docket to do it, but there's no hype to this show. And this is your biggest show of the year. Very, very lackluster. Very, very uneventful. And um, just not a very good job at all uh, as far as Starcade goes. Yeah, and the WCW versus New Japan matches, um, they're hit or miss. There's a couple of good ones, though. So I look forward to those. But overall, yeah, just not really, <laughs> not really a worthwhile pay-per-view. Anyways, coming up this week on WCW Saturday Night, TV champion Johnny B. Bad challenge, uh, defending against Disco Inferno. Big Bubba battles Eddie Guerrero. Hugh Morris will be there, as well as the tag team of Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit. Back to the ring, it's the Giant, with Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart taking on Scott Norton. And the Giant toys around with Scott Norton early here, body slams. Big Scott Norton, I bet he doesn't have that happen to him very often. Norton! with a very impressive atomic drop, picks the giant up in the atomic drop position and just holds him there. And the crowd popped. Uh, quite a feat of strength there by Scott Norton. Very cool uh, visual. Norton with some basic offense, but he can't seem to knock the giant off his feet. Norton goes off the top rope looking for that big shoulder block, but lands right into the hand of the giant and choke slam. Down goes Scott Norton. The giant gets the win. Two minutes, 43 seconds. I just question the booking of Norton here. You have a hundred guys under contract. Any one of them could have done this job without having to use Norton as a sacrifice. Not saying Norton's going to be a main eventer next week. I'm just saying, you know, you've built the guy up. Look at him. I think you could have got a little more out of him than putting him in a situation to do a job here in like two and a half minutes. Yeah, I, I felt like they did a lot at the beginning. Like you said, that atomic drop was crazy. Uh, he just carried him around on his shoulder like he was... Ray Mysterio or something, and it, it looked effortless. Obviously, there's help there and everything involved, but it just it's like you said, it's a great visual. Um, so I think they did a decent enough job of keeping him strong there just because uh, that's what I remember from the match is him kind of dominating the offense and then a little bit after the beginning and then that, that awesome atomic drop. But, yeah, like you said, there's 100 other guys, so why not sacrifice someone else just to get a squash out there? But they did okay in keeping Norton somewhat a little bit relevant, unlike what they did to Kurosawa there. They gave so him the, something. So the main event tonight is Randy Savage defending the world title against Lex Luger, and this is the point in the show where Eric Bischoff begins selling the show running long if it needs to, because WCW is committed. Uh, that pretty much guarantees it's running over, and that's obviously a ploy to get better ratings. Back to the ring, it's promo time with Ric Flair, but he's not alone. He has Sir Charles Barkley with him. And Charles Barkley at that time playing for the Phoenix Suns. They're in Phoenix, Arizona. Barkley was my brother's favorite player. I, I know he loved Jordan too, but I always heard him talk about Charles Barkley. 
you know, when Barkley was at his peak. What a perfect character for Ric Flair to play off of, too. Charles Barkley, who loves to get heat anyway. Uh, Charles puts over Ric Flair. Uh, he teases, uh, Flair teases Barkley becoming a horseman. It was a nothing promo, not terrible, but just there to get Barkley on the show, basically. And, uh, cause he's a local player anyway, and obviously a big name in the NBA at the time, but yeah, just not terrible. That wasn't bad. I, the crowd was booing when he said he, Rick Flair will not, ne- he'll never be able to measure up to the nature boy. Uh, the crowd booed him, but he's like, I don't care what anyone says. He's still my boy, that type of deal. So, yeah, it wasn't much, but it was a cool way to get um, Barkley on the show. Yeah, it's kind of like AEW getting Shaq coming in. Uh, it's just yeah. get, get those uh, names from outside. Of, look, other people uh, you know, are like wrestling, too. Right. <laughs> so it's that time on the show WCW World Championship title match and if it runs over we're going to stick with it because WCW is committed Randy Savage defends against Lex Luger Macho still has the arm all taped up Savage works Lex's arm in a bit of revenge here Macho Man off the apron with a double axe handle knocks Lex Luger into the rail I'm sure Lex sold something like ah! or something like that Lex to Savage's eyes and Macho almost knocks Randy Anderson's head off with a wild swing. Oh, my God. Had Anderson not ducked, he would have knocked him out legit. Savage does things for real. I'm not saying he tried to hit Randy Anderson for real. I'm just saying he, he wants things to look real. And, man, what a swing. If you don't duck, I promise you you're going down. Uh-huh. And so, <laughs> so luckily for Randy Anderson, he ducks the wild swing because Macho's had his eyes uh, raked by Luger here. And as crappy as Lex has been to begin with, he sells his arm as inoperable. And if you thought a two-handed Lex Luger was bad, a one-handed Lex Luger, even worse here, Steve. And to be fair, at least they're telling a story by Savage working his arm, getting a little bit of revenge. But oh my God, Lex was just absolutely terrible here. It's almost overselling the arm to where it's dead. It's just a dead limb hanging off his body. Uh, Jimmy Hart finally removes a turnbuckle for Lex. But Savage is the one who hits Luger into the buckle instead. But the ref takes a bump too during the spot. Macho goes up for the flying elbow, but the ref is down. So Macho brings Jimmy Hart into the ring to get a hold of Jimmy Hart. But it's Ric Flair down here now. There's a lot of interference going on lately here in WC. All these run-ins. It's run-in time already. Uh, Ric Flair interferes though. Foreign object knocks out the Macho Man. Jimmy Hart drag. Could you imagine little Jimmy Hart picking Lex Luger up and dragging him over? Onto the lifeless Macho Man. But that's what happens here. Jimmy Hart drags the 280-pound Lex Luger on top of Macho Man. And Rick, Ric Flair struts backward in the aisle and just happens to do it backwards so he could bump into Hulk Hogan, who's standing behind him. And Hulk prevents Randy Anderson from counting the three count uh, as Lex Luger makes the cover on Savage. So the ref calls for the bell of disqualification on Randy Savage since Hulk Hogan gets involved. Lex wins, but it's by DQ, so Savage will retain the title uh, on Hogan's interference. Match went 16 and a half minutes, easily the longest match on Nitro thus far. Post-match sees Hulk Hogan attacks Lex Luger and Jimmy Hart. Uh, Sting tries to intervene, and then Hulk Hogan accidentally nails Sting, too. And Hulk and Sting begin shoving and arguing. Savage steps between the two and tries to separate them. And even though we're already running overtime, they have a commercial planned. And we go to commercial break before we come back for the final segment. This match wasn't bad. Like you said, they told a story. I was, I was, I enjoyed it. 
like I said, I felt like this was Luger's best match since he came back, but that's not saying much, obviously. And this is kind of the best Savage has looked in a while. Uh, We know with the injuries and things like that, he's kind of had to cut matches short, not do a lot. He made it appear as if he was pretty, pretty banged up or was pretty much healthy for this match. So he did his best to put on a decent match here for the belt. But yeah, it was, um, it was just there. I mean, obviously Lex Luger 95 is nothing special. Savage did the best he could with the injury and things like that, but it was just a shit finish because of Hogan coming out and butting his big ass nose in one more time. So, um, just unfortunate. And we come back from commercial for the final segment of the night. It's a promo in the ring. Imagine that. With Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, and Sting. Hulk's on probation. And he touched another referee here tonight. And Hulk, basically, this is where he shits all over probation. Uh, the entire angle by saying, he's not worried about stinking probation, brother, dude. Uh, way to get over the entire angle. There's shit all over it. Probation means nothing at this point. If Hulk Hogan's not afraid of it, then the heels certainly shouldn't be. Oh, jeez. Hogan is brutal in 95. I'm a Hogan fan, but in 95, like, it's bad. And this was bad. I I haven't enjoyed anything that he's done so far that we've watched. Uh, (laughs) And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. During the promo, Sting reiterates that he's on Hulk Hogan's side, but he's also friends with Lex Luger. Sting asks Hulk if he would run out on the Macho Man because they're friends. Macho can sometimes be in his own world, says Sting. And I just thought that was funny. So Sting basically using the same dynamic. Hey, Hulk, Savage isn't always there, but you're his friend. Well, you know, Lex isn't always there, but he's my friend. So you just kind of have to accept, you know, who I choose as my friends. This sounds silly like it's high school. Macho Man says he told Sting that Luger was bad from the beginning. Sting thinks maybe Macho's accusation helped Luger turn heel. That's kind of funny. It's a little deep in thought that, Maybe Luger turned heel because you kept shitting on him, man. You know, it explains a lot. But Stinger is still working on getting Lex back on the level. He's going to turn Lex baby face. I love these conversations. Jimmy Hart last week, he's telling Kevin Sullivan, no, no, baby, we're going we're gonna to keep Luger heel and then, right on camera. And now Sting this week on, right on camera telling the mega powers basically that, hey, guys, I'm, I'm trying to turn Lex baby face. Just hang in there for me, please. You know, just. Silly conversations to be had in front of the camera. But uh, as we close the show, everyone's buddies again in the ring. Yeah, just typical. The last of the show interview that they always tend to do. Uh, They always like to send it out with with an interview or a promo or something like that for the most part. So this is just a run of a mill. Everybody's accusing everybody of everything. And let's kiss and make up to send everybody home happy, I guess. Uh, That's kind of how it felt. But yeah. Again, another lackluster show. I think by this point, I was like, where the hell are the Cruiserweights? We haven't had any in a while. In two weeks, And, at least. and I miss them. Yeah. Yeah, I miss them. And um, they're, they're easily I think uh, on missed, the next, yes. Yeah, I think on the next show, like, I think it opens up with a Malenko match or something, and I'm just like, oh, well, this is what I've been missing. Because uh, these shows just drag a little bit. Raw and Nitro, these four shows did, it felt like. And um, they're very noticeable, like you said. Yeah, another uneventful show i felt like so nitro gets his first run over doing 10 to 12 minute overrun here and so it begins with bischoff playing games with the time now because basically the owner of the wrestling company owns the channel as well so they can pretty much do whatever they need to do 
and, and so it begins with the uh, the overrun and, and all the, that type of stuff. Demeltz reports two things, and I don't know how accurate this is until we get to it because I haven't watched this far ahead. He reports that there will be no Nitro on Christmas, which is a falsehood because there is a Nitro on Christmas. Isn't there, Steve? There is. I watched yeah. it. And I know it was taped the week before, but there is a Nitro on Christmas, so Demelt's wrong about that. But he also reports, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but he says there will be a Nitro on New Year's Day, which I know there is, but he says it's coming from the Omni in Atlanta. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but he says, with the arena cut down for a 4,000-seat setup and giving virtually all the tickets away, it'll be the first show at the Omni, the first WCW show at the Omni, since October of 1993. Could you believe there was a time where there wasn't wrestling in the Omni? That's, that's how bad the business got. It's, it's crazy. I, I never would have believed you if you told me that they didn't run the Omni until two 1996. Years, Over two years, yeah. For two years. Yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> Man. Demelts claims that, 93 was Yeah, yeah Demelts claims... Either. Well, it was pretty bad, you know, during 1993 overall. Um, Demelts claims that they drew 700 fans at that October 93 show at the Omni, which caused them to decide to uh, stop running shows there. It's just crazy to think because the Omni was, you know, the Madison Square Garden of Georgia Championship Wrestling and and even really uh, one of, you know, Crockett's big areas to run. Uh, Obviously, the TV tapings are done in Atlanta, so it's just crazy to think. Segment of the night, Steve. Is it Lex versus Macho Man? Is it Sherry and Rob Parker in your imagination? You tell me what's the segment of the night. <laughs> it's Savage and Luger. Um, I enjoyed the match. I thought it was decent. Uh, I like the fact that Hogan did end up dropping Sting uh, to kind of see whose side is who on. Is Sting going to turn and join Luger? Is Luger going to go back to be buddies with Sting and everybody? Where are they going to go with that? So uh, I enjoyed that part of it, not necessarily the promo and everything else after that. But again, this is another lackluster show outside of that main event match, I felt like. And it's over to USA for WWF Monday at Raw for December 4th. This is, again, taped back on November 20th in Richmond, Virginia. What's the segment of the show? What's that? Oh, shit. What's Sorry, guys. My segment? I was trying to escape that one, actually. I wasn't a big <laughs> fan of the Lex and Macho match, although I did have a lot of fun imagining sherry doing what she does doing her thing if you will um i guess i'd have to go with the lex and macho macho man segments really the only thing credible on the entire show to be honest with you i wasn't really a big fan of anything else on the show so that was the least shittiest thing on the show so i guess i'll go with the world title match yeah i i'll agree with you there by default yeah that's the way these shows felt i was struggling to make it a segment of the night is just so bad. And we'll move away from that lump of shit. And we'll move on to WWF Monday Night Raw, December 4th. Uh, again, this is the third of, I think, four weeks of tapings from the old Richmond, Virginia taping on November 20th. We learn before the show starts. We don't learn this on the show, but Dave Meltzer reports x-rays have revealed that Dean Douglas has two fractured vertebrae in his back. And he's telling people he's thinking of quitting wrestling. That is for to laugh. Uh, Shane Douglas basically says he's thinking about starting medical school next year. Instead, he's breaking people's necks and putting them in halos next year. I guess that's medical school, right? <laughs> yeah, it's medical school for somebody. Somebody's getting paid. 
The show opens with promos from Sid and Marty Jannetty. They'll be fighting each other later tonight on the show. Show kicks off with the British Bulldog taking on Bob Sparkplug Holly. They mentioned during this match that Bulldog has recently defeated Bret Hart in the Meadowlands Arena prior to Bret's world title match here, uh, prior to Bret winning the world title at the Survivor Series. So Bulldog beat him at SummerSlam for the Intercontinental title. And again, now to make it more relevant, more recent, the Bulldog has defeated Bret Hart on a house show, but it was before Bret won the world title. So Bulldog has his number, it would appear. So that's the storyline going into the In Your House pay-per-view. Bulldog with a press slam and drops Bob Holly crotch first across the top rope. I don't know how that wasn't a disqualification. Come on, Jack Doan. Bulldog toys going for his suplex and almost loses to an inside cradle by doing so. Several hope spots. Quick pinfall attempts by Bob Holly. Holly tries an up and over in the corner, but lands right into the shoulder of the Bulldog for the running power slam. British Bulldog gets the win in five minutes, five seconds. Fun squash. Yeah, I thought so. It was decent. Bob Ollie's always good, uh, especially around this time. He's flying around doing some stuff that's a little different than what we, what he did later on. So, yeah, Bulldog looked good, and uh, he's ready for his match at In Your House. Next week, we learn it's Bret Hart defending the title against Bob Backlund on Raw. We see clips from last week of Bob attacking Bret Hart. And also on Superstars over the weekend, Jim Ross is the victim of the crossface chicken wing. Crazy to think that. I think it's the first time they ever incorporated Jim Ross into a, uh, a physical attack. And it really blew my mind to see an announcer attacked like that. I hadn't seen a lot of that up until that point in wrestling. And Savio Vega winds up making the save there. Yeah, it's a shame they wasted it on superstars, though. I've <laughs> been more impactful on Raw, but I guess you really don't have that opportunity when you're heading into a title match uh, or non-title matches. We'll find out the following week. So, yeah. Pretty cool. Different. We get a promo. Jerry Lawler interviews Bob Backlund, who's campaigning ringside. The King informs Bob that next week's match is a non-title match. So I lied. I said it was a world title match. Apparently it wasn't. It's a non-title match. And Bob Backlund snaps. He shouts, I want to be God again. I'm assuming he meant he wanted to be the world champion again, but he says he wants to be God again. And Vince is even like, what did he just say? Uh, They cut Bob's mic because he won't shut up. It almost felt legit. He just kept going on and on. I can't remember who they just cut or released or, you know, his time came to the end in the WWE, but he he was uh, some type of director or something along those lines. And they asked him who was the worst person to to handle, you know, direct or or deal with uh, in promos. And I believe he said Bob Backlund because they would go through 100 takes because he would just continuously screw up his lines. And I find I don't find that hard to believe whatsoever. It's just out there. Bob just like inherits this character. If it is a character at this point, I don't even have a clue. And man, I mean, just like his Hall of Fame speech, what a what an embarrassment that was. But yeah, just Bob Backlund <laughs> being Bob Backlund here, and he's uh, he's pissed off. They cut his mic, so now he's off to go look for the sound guy. Look out, sound guy. Yeah, better run, buddy. Back to the ring, it's Fatu taking on the Brooklyn Brawler. Brawler attacks Fatu, but it's Fatu with the diamond cutter. Bang, bitch. And the Fatu splash on the top rope ends this in a minute and a half. Talk about a quick squash by Fatu. Yeah, Fatu looked pretty decent here. The way you're going through this makes this show seem like it was going really fast. It was kind of dragging here, to be honest (laughs) with you. But uh, another decent squash. Whenever a squash lasts a minute and a half, I'm happy. So uh, not a bad match. Well, it's time for handsome Doc Hendricks and the Slam Jam. 
And Owen Hart's open contract? Well, it's not open anymore. But before we can find out who Owen's going to wrestle it in your house, Bob Backlund's found the sound guy and he throws him in the chicken wing. This sound guy looked like he weighed about 80 pounds, Steve. He's <laughs> just the skin and bones. As Bob Backlund threw this guy from side to side, swished him around in the chicken wing, and poor sound guy, or whoever he really was, I have no idea. Poor guy was wrapped in cords and all kinds of shit. Yeah, it reminds me when that um, writer for the magazine got put into the crossface, and uh, yeah, he looked like a buck 25 soaking wet, and Backlund's just ragdolling him, and uh, this guy was no different. Yeah, he should have ran. So he said he's the sound guy cut his mic. <laughs> he should have took off. And Doc Hendricks downplays the attack because he has some news for the, the Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler. It's somebody has signed the open contract for Owen Hart and in your house. And it's none other than big daddy, cool diesel. And a lot of people might be asking well, why diesel? Well, put two and two together. Who's diesel's best friend, Shawn Michaels. Who did Owen Hart take out last week? Shawn Michaels. Diesel is not necessarily a heel yet, and he's coming and looking for revenge for his buddy, HBK. So it's Diesel and Owen Hart, and, not, uh, and it makes sense. It's more continuity that we haven't seen in a while here, in the at least like we were accustomed to in the WWF, and it, it makes sense. Diesel's coming for revenge at In Your House with Owen Hart. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to see that match. The sad part is, is they're kind of pushing both of these guys. Owen did his thing to Sean and Razor did, or Diesel did his thing to Brett and is really on this new upward trajectory with his new character and things that he's doing. So uh, I'm interested to see how they handle that. I think I have a pretty good idea, uh, but it's been a long time since I watched it in your house. So um, I'm looking forward to like, kind of reliving that one. It's Intercontinental Champion Razor Ramon defending against Dean Douglas. Dean attacks Razor, but it's Razor quickly clearing the ring of the ranch fries. Dean Douglas with some shitty spots starting to sell his back that might play into the uh, vertebrae issue, Melser noted. Uh, it seemed kind of odd that Dean was selling his back because Razor hadn't really worked on it. May have even tweaked it here. Uh, legitimately tweaked it, I'm not really sure. Dean hits a shitty-looking middle rope reverse splash. He runs into the corner face first, jumps up onto the middle rope, and then kind of pivots a 180 in the air and lands with a shitty-looking splash. Just a shitty move. I don't think he ever does it again, but I don't know what the fuck he was thinking. It's just terrible. Anyways, this whole match is just shit. Abdominal stretch spot holding the ropes. Dean Douglas. Razor Ramon rolls through. A shitty top rope reverse body block. Shane just looks terrible. Everything he's doing is just absolutely awful. And you can blame it on, well, maybe he wants to leave. Maybe he doesn't care. I don't give a shit, man. You don't put on a match like this is fucking awful. It's embarrassing. He doesn't even belong in the ring at this point. And Razor simply clotheslines him and a Razor's Edge on Dean for the win like a jobber bitch. Five and a half minutes. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I mean, these dudes are oh, come on. just like, I know I've harped on it on the grenade. And if you're fans of us in general, you know, I like to be, you know, you should be out there being professional. But if he really does have a bad bag with some vertebrae issues and he's already one leg out the door. And he's in the ring with the people that he can't stand. It's just a recipe for disaster. You can, you shouldn't expect much from Dean Douglas at that point. I get I, it. Uh, I haven't gotten shit from Dean point. Douglas since the minute he walked in the door. Can you name one good Shane Douglas match since he's been here in the company? 
I mean, he he got handed shit as soon as he walked in the door. I don't know, man. I I, I blame Shane for a lot of this. I I know the clicker dicks, and you know, and I I get why he wants to leave, and I don't blame him for any of that. But I mean, could have put together one good match at some point somewhere, and I'm just hey, not seeing he, it. Gimmick or no gimmick. Look at Bob Holly. Look was, at his gimmick. Bob Holly's still out there, you know, doing uh, fun jobs. I mean, uh, Bob Holly probably liked his gimmick. Shane Douglas. I mean, he was in that wild card match. <laughs> yeah, I guess that counts. Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. Man. I don't even know what Dan Dean Douglas. Ma- I guess his match in your house with Razor wasn't bad. It's Razor beat him that. up for ninety percent of the match and then pinned him. Now is that his fault? Is that his fault? Yeah, Shane should be calling the match. He's the heel. Yeah, but it's the click doing the click thing. They're not going to give this guy anything. Well, got to stand up for yourself, man. Go, go, go run the roost over at the uh, bingo hall, I guess. Boo, everybody, all the ECW fans shitting on me right now. Hey, I love ECW. I'm just saying. I, I just, I don't know, dude. I just. I'm watching when I watch this match particularly. I'm like, you know what? Fuck this, dude. I don't give a. F- if your back's that bad, you shouldn't even have worked this match. If it wasn't because your bad back was bad, then shame on you for just sucking this fucking bad. <laughs> I'm moving on, man, because I, I don't want to run a three-hour show here, though. So we'll move past the ranch fries for now, anyway. It's time for the brother love show once again, and King Mabel. Mabel will meet The Undertaker. We learn it's going to be a casket match in your house. Brother Love has a surprise for Mabel, and Mabel doesn't like surprises. The Druid comes out with a casket. We see a big Druid come out with a casket. The Undertaker's music playing. Is Brother Love a babyface now? Because he did bring The Undertaker back to the WWF, and Mabel isn't really digging the vibes here. Mabel is not happy. He says, Brother Love, I don't like surprises. I love the way Mabel addresses Brother, brother love, I don't like surprises. It's just so funny the way he talks to him. The druid removes his mask, and it turns out to be Sir Mo. And then Mabel even asks, did you turn Sir Mo against me? It was uh, really good stuff. Mo reveals a vandalized spray-painted casket underneath the cloth. It's uh, the old Yokozuna Undertaker casket, the big giant casket, but it's covered in vandalization. Now, M-O-M, written all over the casket. Mabel, thanks, Brother Love, for the surprise by the end of the segment. I thought they did a good job making you, keeping you guessing. Is Brother Love going fake? What the hell is, what, what exactly is happening here? I thought it was a fun little segment. Given, yeah, I agree. Given those involved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you tell me King Mabel's going to be on the Brother Love show in 95. I'm like, yuck, you know, vomit emoji. But once it started, I, I was like, well, what the hell's going on here? This is different. And it was one of those things that, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought Mabel did a great job. He said at the end there, in your house, there'll be no love for The Undertaker, but 568 pounds of pure hate. And he, it, I thought it was a decent line. He delivered it well. I, I'm with you, man. I thought they did a great job of suspending your belief. Like, well, is Brother Love going good here? What's going on? And it, it lasted throughout the entire segment. So, uh, again, solid job here. Yeah. I mean, I even like the part where Mo unmasks, and instead of going, oh, you got me, I, it's my buddy Mo, Mabel's still kind of confused, like, did you turn Mo against me? So I thought they did a really good job all the way to the end. And we'll Absolutely. go on with the show. It's uh, Razor Ramon backstage psyching up Marty Jannetty for his match upcoming with Sid. And we get a promo for the Raw Bowl. The Raw Bowl is coming to the WWF. 
January 1st. I can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> Me too. Barry Dedensky standing next to life-size cardboard stand-ups of The Undertaker and Diesel. And I know you talk about their value in 2020, but let's ignore their value for a moment. Like, how shitty is this? Who the f- I, I won't. I won't even start, I guess, on this, but Jesus. Some of the shit they were selling in 1995, it really matched the shit that was going on in the ring. It's like, shitty ring product? <laughs> shitty sales products. Pretty much. I'm with you. I wouldn't want one of those. <laughs> no, I had uh, Sonny and Kathy Ireland posters on my wall. Not Undertaker and Diesel. <laughs> Can't say I blame you. I will say when I was at WrestleMania, some dude was carrying around the, the Shawn Michaels one. Uh, it was all bent all to hell. As if it's gone through hell and back, and um, but it was pretty much intact, and he was carrying it around with him all night. <laughs> I don't know why anybody would want to do that at a WrestleMania. I have to deal with it, but yeah, that's <laughs> I, I seen one. Main event of the night sees Marty Jannetty take on Psycho Sid with Ted DiBiase. Marty wisely attacks Sid, uh, nails a crossbody. It works once, but he tries it again, and Sid catches him the second time for a front slam. Razor Ramon. Is shown watching backstage. He's doing a lot of watching on monitors backstage lately. He did it Survivor Series. He's doing it here again. Sid dominates, controls the match. Marty Jannetty comes back with a somersault diamond cutter. Is the best way I could describe it. Off the middle rope. He stands behind Sid. He leaps over him in a flip and, and lands on a diamond cutter type move. But Sid right back on top after a commercial break. We get not one but two. Inside-out clotheslines by Sid on Janetti. I've seen it done a million times, uh, especially Janetti loves to do the inside-out bump. But to do it twice in the same match was just overkill for me. Ted DiBiase winds up attacking Janetti on the floor, but Marty no-sells. So Ted DiBiase's two years removed from the uh, being an in-ring wrestler, but he's already got that manager effect going for him. He's, he's beating on Janetti, and Janetti's no-selling, the million-dollar man. So that's where we're at here by 1995 anyway. Meanwhile, the one, two, three kid shows up, blasts Marty from behind in the back. Razor Ramon is out to make the save. Razor chases after the kid. The kid wisely runs through the ring and hides behind Sid. Very, very comical. As Razor Ramon clears Sid and the kid goes running off some more. It was uh, kind of funny to watch the Sid hiding behind the, uh, or excuse me, the kid hiding behind Sid. So Razor disposes of Sid. So the kid's like, oh shit. And then he keeps running. It's like, it's, uh, it's just funny shit. And then the kid goes running through the crowd. Razor goes chasing after him. And back in the ring, Sid powerbombs Janetti. DiBiase stuffs $100 in his mouth. And Marty Janetti apparently won the match on disqualification in about six minutes or so. I'm still not exactly sure how he won the match by disqualification. It was Razor that came in the ring. But maybe the kid got, to, got him disqualified. Maybe the referee saw the attack on the floor. Don't really know what happens, but Janetti somehow gets the win by DQ here in about six minutes. What'd you make of this match? I thought it was pretty entertaining. Whenever you get Marty Janetti in there with a guy like Sid who can beat him up a little bit and he's going to sell pretty well for him. Uh, I thought it was a pretty entertaining match. Yeah. And it's uh it should be noted here that they could have disposed of Janetti, had him take the power bomb, do the job, but they protected him here, even gave him a win by disqualification. Janetti really feels like he's filling that intercontinental level void right now. Maybe not necessarily at Razor's level, but directly underneath Razor's level, at least at this point. Yeah. That'll all change here in another month or so when he's uh, lumped in with the new and improved Rockers. Yeah, I think he also is in the tag match in your house, so obviously you don't want to job him out just yet. Right. 
Todd Pettengill talks to Dr. Jeffrey Unger. It's the doctor that oversaw Shawn Michaels after the attack by the thugs in Syracuse and also uh, has uh, basically uh, been handling Shawn Michaels since the collapse last week. Unger discusses post-concussion syndrome, his belief that Shawn should be out of action for a prolonged period of time, said Shawn Michaels has brain damage, says he has brain damage. And that additional blows to the head could cause life-threatening injuries. That's insane that they're pushing that Shawn Michaels could very well die. That's a new level here in the WWF. Shawn is not progressing very well, neurologically, says the doc. Uh, he may never return to the ring. And then we get a, uh, a video with Vince McMahon doing a voiceover. And I actually captured that. That's our first audio bite here on Monday Warfare. I found it kind of interesting. And I wanted to play that for everyone before we discuss it. So now, what becomes of Shawn Michaels? The most charismatic, the most flamboyant superstar in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. Well, Dr. Unger left me with these very disturbing final comments regarding the future of Shawn Michaels. Shawn is simply not progressing very well neurologically. I don't think it would be safe for him to enter the ring at this time. In fact, it may not be safe for him to go back to wrestling at all. These sobering thoughts have led us to reflect upon many of our WWF superstars. In the theater of life, we tend to place public figures on a pedestal. For an elite few, we reserve the mantle of superstardom. By doing this, we separate these individuals from the rest of us, bestowing upon them superhuman qualities that may or may not even exist. We tend to think of our superstars as different from us. Superstars are bigger than we are. They're faster. They're stronger. Why, they don't even think the way we think. They don't talk the way we talk. And they certainly don't feel pain the way we feel pain. Well, Shawn Michaels has unquestionably always been the very embodiment of what superstardom is really all about. But two weeks ago on Raw, the facade of superstardom was smashed in an instant when Shawn Michaels collapsed to the canvas. In that frightening moment, we realized that a superstar is really just like the rest of us, a human being. They do feel pain. They're not invincible. Unquestionably, these athletes are driven by their insatiable desire to be the very best they can be. Here in the World Rusting Federation, we cheer wildly as these superstars risk their bodies time after time, constantly taking one step closer to the edge in an effort to thrill the crowd. Well, Shawn Michaels has been living on the edge and thrilling the crowds for quite some time. Shawn Michaels wowed us into believing that he could do just about anything because we've seen him do it. But now we find ourselves in the uncomfortable position of hoping he'll just be all right. All the while, knowing we helped push him over the edge and our unquenchable thirst for excitement. However, like anyone who totally loves what they do, Shawn Michaels can't wait to get back into the ring. And believe me, he's even more anxious to get back than we are to see him back. But unfortunately, now there's a question as to when 
or even if Shawn Michaels should return at all. Just an excellent piece by my estimation anyway from Vince McMahon there. I don't know who wrote that. I don't know if Vince spewed that out of himself, but it was amazing. And it, I remember watching that and it felt like a shame on you to the fans for expecting so much and they've given you so much. And this is what happens with your you know thirst for more. And I remember back then thinking, man, it was, is it my fault that this happened to Shawn Michaels? You know, it's, uh, it was a lot of shoot. Uh, comments there, you know, in that uh, from uh, Vince as well. Just a really well done uh, video piece. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I thought it was very well done. It was overly dramatic a little bit, but nothing to the point that it turned me off to it. Uh, again, I, I think Vince is just, uh, he can really belt some stuff out and he really conveyed all the emotions that you would want in that sort of segment. So I'm glad it was him that did the narration. Because uh, very few people, in my estimation, can really put that over like he can. He just has that voice that resonates with people. I really enjoyed it. I remember watching. Uh, I, I was watching the show, and then when this came on, I kind of just stopped what else I was doing and just listened. Uh, that's just kind of how the impact of that video has on you. You want to watch it. You want to hear what he has to say. But, yeah, I thought it was very well done. I don't want to shit on it or anything. It just feels like it's it, clearly at this point it's a work. They're just doing way too much to promote it and to try to get you to continue to buy in and tune in to what's going to happen next. It, it clearly feels like that at this point. If something bad happened, you're just going to shut it off and not talk about it and move on. You're, you're going to forget. try to get people to forget that it happened. This has been prominent almost the entire shows for the last three weeks. And so at this point, you can kind of feel that. And this kind of hammered that home to me anyway. Not necessarily in 95, but now. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm just looking at it from the uh, the angle standpoint, or not even really the angle standpoint, just the uh, the production of this segment was so different. Uh, we had never experienced anything like this before Vince basically breaking the fourth wall and almost implying that wrestling is fake right at the beginning of this uh, video when he says something along the lines of, um, you know, may or may not, things being, you know, real and, and things like that. So, it was definitely very different. And in 14 weeks of TV that we've done so far for Monday Warfare, uh, it's the first time I've grabbed a soundbite, so it really resonated with me anyway. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I was hoping you would. I, know, I didn't know if it was something he was ever going to add into this show or what, or we just haven't ran anything that's worth a shit. Uh, but this is definitely one of those things that everybody needs to hear if you haven't heard it in a long time. I, know a lot, I don't know of a lot of people that go back and binge watch 1995 WBF Raw. So hopefully hearing this on our show really uh, hammers home to people kind of how they sold this angle. And really a lot of people remember the angle where he fell, but not everybody necessarily remembers the weeks right afterwards. So hopefully this triggers some memories and things like that. But it was definitely very well done and groundbreaking for the time. Yeah, and probably the first time I've heard this in 25 years. So I was just like, wow, man, this is really, really, it really grasps you. So segment of the night, Steve, was at the Brother Love Show with Mabel, who did an actually a, a good job this week. Was it Sid and Marty Janetti? Was it the Shawn Michaels video package at the end? You tell me, segment of the night. Uh, I went with Shawn and Mar or Sid and Marty. Outside of that video package and that, that match, I didn't feel like anything really stuck out on this show. There was things that weren't terrible, but nothing really that good. Um, but I, I like Sid and Marty. I, it was a decent enough and good enough angle to get, Hive up the tag match at In Your House. 
I, I thought that, like I said, the video package is very well done. I thought it was a solid show, but nothing special or memorable, really. Just it, it just run of a mill show. It felt like. Yeah, and I did like the end of the show. Obviously, we just talked about it, the Vince McMahon comments and and things of that with Shawn Michaels, but that doesn't seem like something you should enjoy. So while while I thought it was really well done, I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't something I go, oh, this is great, you know, or something like that. So uh, I also, you know, I have to think back. I I couldn't believe that entire Brother Love show with Mabel. I'm sitting there thinking the entire time, why am I enjoying this so much? This is really good. Oh my god, like I'm pumped. Like um. Um, popping for Mabel and, and doing a good job, you know, in, in the promo and things. Uh, I thought that was a really good segment too, but I, I'll agree with you. I think it was the segment that I'd had to probably go to Sid and Marty Janetti. I probably would have honestly leaned towards the brother love show because I was that impressed with, with everyone involved in the segment because of the disqualification in the Sid and Janetti match. The reason I'm going with Sid and Janetti is because it was to push a match at the pay-per-view. So the DQ made sense. I was fine with that. Uh, because we're going to see Sid and the Kid take on Razor and Marty Jannetty at the pay-per-view. So the entire thing sets up the pay-per-view match. So I'm down with that. I'm down with the finish. There was some fun stuff during the match as well. So I'll go Sid and Marty as well here. Uh, and I think I know why you was really enjoying that Brother Love show. It's because you've been watching Funk's Grill <laughs> on the Memory Grenade for a while now. And that's like how you not to handle one of these segment shows like that. Whenever you see something that's decent, in a, seg- in a se- setting like that, it's going to stick out. <laughs> yeah, they they did a good job. I, I'll say that much. Absolutely. It's awesome. And? The ratings are in. And by going 10 minutes over time, WCW picked up an extra .2 in the ratings because they got that extra quarter hour added on to the uh, good end, which wrestling shows traditionally build audiences anyway as they go along, so it built an even bigger audience. That turned out to be the margin needed as WCW wins the ratings for December 4th in the battle with a 2.6 rating, tying its record high and a 3.8 share to WWF's 2.4 rating and a 3.4 share. So even though WCW ties its record high, it still only beats the WWF Raw show by point one. Point two. I'm not surprised, but it's kind of a little bit unfair and misleading. I mean, you got an extra quarter hour added in, uh, so it's not necessarily you know lined up to each other. Uh, again, it's just one of those little things that they did uh, to gain that advantage because you knew that's how it was going to be counted. However, if you like break it down quarter hour to quarter hour, it looks like it was going to be a tie if they didn't do that. So. Um, just interesting. I, I'm I'm always intrigued by that little those little things like that that they try to do just to pop a little bit bigger rating compared to the other guys. Those nasty tricks that Bischoff and Vince did to each other. Yeah, and we learn also that the Thursday Raw replay is now canceled, and that may help the WWF in winning some of the ratings moving forward because there's no replay anymore for people to tune in on Thursday. They've been doing that since the beginning of the Monday Night War. So no more Thursday Raw replay. Raw is on Monday nights and Monday nights alone. And now, Steve, it's time for the real winner. WCW wins in the ratings. Who wins in your mind? Uh, I went with Nitro, I suppose. Um, I like the angle with Hogan dropping Sting with the clothesline and the match with Savage and Luger more than really anything on on either show. Uh, Like you said, you don't want to enjoy that video package with Vince McMahon 
it's not to be entertainment. So it's kind of hard to say that was your favorite part or the deciding factor. Who's the better show? Uh, it's probably the best thing on any on either show, to be honest with you, as far as pure, you know, doing what it's supposed to do, intended to do. But I, I'm going to go with Nitro on this one. Uh, I just feel like both, all these shows have been gone downhill lately. And I don't know if it's the lack of cruiserweights on Nitro. And then this is the fourth week of a four week taping with Raw. And, and things like that. And also, we coming off that those three or four weeks of Bill Watts booking where everything's high impact and crazy and different than what you're seeing. And now it's back to Vince and company. And it's very lackluster and boring. And it's just centered around that Shawn Michaels story and nothing else, really, uh, besides shit like Bret Hart and Bob Eklund that nobody wants to see. Right. So, um it's just been very lackluster and I was very, I was bored watching these shows. Like this has to pick up at some point, right? When, yeah. When's it going to pick up? Again? And yeah. it hasn't yet. I think this is the first entire episode of Monday warfare where all four shows were bombs for me. I, I don't know that any of them were very good. They obviously all had a, a segment maybe that were, was okay. Obviously the ladies both in the last week's episodes and a few things here this week. I actually, I'm going to go with raw here just because I understand there was, one good thing that you enjoyed on Nitro overall. I'm going with Raw here because there was a few things I liked to some degree. I thought Bulldog and, and um, Bob Holly was okay for a curtain jerker. I thought the, the, the finish of the show with the Vince McMahon promo, obviously, really, really well done segment. I liked the Sid and Marty stuff. And I also enjoyed the Brother Love show. So I'm not saying it was a good show. All this stuff was just okay. None of it was, oh, this was great. But it was enough okay stuff, and it still did drag, don't get me wrong. But I thought there was a little more okay stuff throughout the entire show. It made it a little better than, than, for me anyway, than Nitro. Of course, you know I know you're a big Luger fan. I, I, I'm fine with Luger in 1989. I'm, I, can't, I can't do Luger in 1995. No, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't, but I'm just saying. But I thought it was a decent match. Like you mentioned, they told a story with the arms and things like that and the finish was shitty of course but i didn't mind the aftermath with hogan and sting getting added into that hogan actually get sticking his nose in that kind of intrigued me a little bit too so right it's not like we're trying to hype this up that this is decent stuff it's just like we're trying to pick something because we have to we've kind of boxed ourselves into that on these shows we have to pick something yeah and so we're, we're just it's just like okay what wasn't the most terrible thing on the show is kind of more how it was than um, what was the best thing on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, man. No, I was just messing around with you, dude. Don't, don't take it. Don't, 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 don't get bent out of shape on Lex Luger now. Oh, man. 95 Luger, I'm not going to defend him at all. But Okay. Uh, well, it's not at, at least you don't have blinders on then. That's good. No blinders. So that should finish up the show this week. Uh, another big Merry Christmas to everyone who's listening this week. And if you're not listening uh, during the week of Christmas, certainly uh, I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. And Steve, I got to say Merry Christmas to you too. And we're going to be back next week. We're going to get in one more show on the 28th here before it's 2021. So one more show of Monday Warfare here in 2020. Yeah, it's crazy. We're getting eight episodes in. This is number seven. We got number eight next week on New Year's week, and 2020 is finally over. Good riddance. No, I don't think anything good happened in 2020 uh, that I can recall. <laughs> oh. um, 
So it's been a roller coaster for everybody. Hopefully our podcasts have kind of given you a, a release from life and a few hours of uh, entertainment. And thank you all for supporting us. Hope you all have a great Christmas. Stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, we'll look for you all to listen again next week. Well, I hope one good thing happened in 2020, and that's the debut of the WrestleCopia brand and, and the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, and all the other good things that come with it. And uh, more good things coming in 2021, but we'll talk about that on later episodes. So, Steve, I want to thank you, man, for continuing this ride back in 1995, soon to be 1996, as part of the Monday Night War and Monday Warfare show. Oh, yeah, it's it's fun. We got to get through these rough spots, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more of them down the road. Um, but we'll get there, and uh, it's fun. I, I love the hell out of this, man. It's, it's always a good time talking to you. And that wraps it up this week for Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We'll be back again next week for another episode. So once again, one final time, just want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, and for those PC players out there, Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays.